Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and I am excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, man, I am uh, fired up about this week's show. I'm looking forward to covering this because there's just so much going on. Um, But I do want to circle back and and do a follow-up on last week's episode. We covered one of my favorite and most underrated pay-per-views of all time in your house, bad blood, 1997, the birth of Kane. And uh, I got great feedback on this show, Bruce. How about you? I mainly got great feedback. The only other feedback was of course the, um, photo shopped picture of Kane. Yeah. I guess Oops, we should Kane say did not wear green. Yeah. One of the things we talked about last week is the rumor and innuendo that Kane had a green and black outfit when he was tagging with Kane or tagging with X-Pac. Um, and there are photos out there, but a lot of people maybe were fooled with that because clearly a Photoshop and the people who kind of challenged me on Twitter with that, Dave Silver replied with their face in X-Pac's place, which I thought was hilarious. And, and exactly. I thought it worked beautifully, but, uh, contrary to popular belief, that is simply rumor and innuendo, which is Corey Graves new go-to these days. It sounds like too, but, uh, yeah, just rumor and innuendo folks. Yeah. Shout out to Corey and, and Dolph, uh, because he's been using, and then the bell rang, uh, over on SmackDown. So we appreciate their support. One of the things yeah. that we got a little bit of follow up from on bad blood was talking about, um, the reaction from Vince McMahon after the match. So obviously it is a clinic with undertaker and Shawn Michaels, one of the greatest matches ever after a match like that. What's the reception amongst Vince and the office and the boys backstage when the guys walk through, does everybody realize they've just done something special? Is it a sellout at the curtain? Are they getting a standing ovation? What happens when the boys come back through the curtain after a match like that in your house, bad blood? As far as somebody like Vince, it's kind of like a proud father, a proud father watching, uh, his children go out and perform and go above and beyond the call of duty. So, um, as far as Vince goes, he was extremely proud, extremely happy and happy that, uh, for the most part, everybody got out of it unscathed and there was no serious injury from the talent point of view. Yeah, guys get a standing ovation and people line up just to shake their hand and congratulate them and tell them what a great performance that they just put in. Well, uh, Bad Blood is uh, quite the episode. If you, for whatever reason, haven't heard it yet, you need to go find that episode just so you can hear the story of when Attitude was really born. That was probably my favorite takeaway from last week. Uh, But Bruce, you had a rather interesting weekend, and uh, I don't know when we should fit this in. So let's just talk about it. I was not able 
to make the live show this past weekend. My real life work uh, wouldn't allow it. Uh, so you and Jim Cornette had all the fun at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. And I hear it's one of the rowdiest crowds of all time, and I miss quite the show. Well, let's start off with the Dirty Dozen that uh, Dave Silva somehow it became a uh, – I guess a Mexican dirty dozen because <laughs> they kept coming, but it was, it was a, it was an intimate group of, of like 15, 16 guys. And we had a blast the night before where we got to sit around, have a few drinks and, uh, they got to ask me whatever they wanted to ask me. And we had a good time. And from there, we went to St. Andrews hall in Detroit and my guest, James E. Cornette, my friend of over 30 years. I love corny to death. Um, he has always been my friend. He always will be my friend, uh, no matter what he does. And the crowd came out. It was a tremendous crowd. They were into everything. And, um, I want to thank Jim <laughs> for coming out and thank everybody in Detroit because you remember when you and I first uh, started this and we looked at Detroit, we both kind of went, eh, Detroit. Well, no, not I, really sure. I've actually had a lot of fun in Detroit. I, I, when I, one of the underrated things about Detroit, and I don't know that you check this out, they have an MGM Grand. So you can go up there and play blackjack. And I did that a few years ago when they had a UFC pay per view up there, and it was a blast. Uh, so I would have I really enjoyed it, but. Work wouldn't allow well, it, and, and it wound up being one of our better markets, right? It, it really did. I, the reason I was saying, and eh, Detroit was simply because Detroit has gone through some hard times. Sure. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't know that they're really going to come out and support the show at this point. They proved to be one of the most enthusiastic crowds that we've ever had. Uh, an absolutely great audience. I loved them. I had an absolute blast with everybody in Detroit this past weekend, and that's a market that I wrote down. Yep, going back. Loved it. Well, and I don't know that you know this or not, but uh, somebody smartened me up and said that in the movie Eight Mile uh, with uh, Eminem, that a lot of his battle rap scenes you know, the whole mom spaghetti deal that happened on the same stage with you and Jim Cornette. How about that? It is St. Andrews. Yeah. There, there was that building had so much history in it. It actually started off as an American Legion hall. I thought it was a church, but it just had so much history and everybody who's anybody has played in St. Andrews hall at some point. Well, uh, are we going to talk about the rumor and innuendo? I know that we don't normally deal in rumor and innuendo, but this feels like something we should bring up. There's lots of reports out there, and I wasn't there, um, so I can't I can't speak to this. But there's a rumor that uh, Jim Cornette got a little it, little too into it and uh, took a prop we had on stage representing Vince Russo. He threw the prop down, and then according to the rumor and innuendo. Um, he pulled out George, the rat. Well, um, you know, I saw, I saw the video, the censored video, thank God. And as you can see, I'm not looking at Jim, I'm looking away. So I didn't see it. I didn't even hear about this until, um, after the fact on my way to the airport that day. And I just said, come on, you know, um, 
So I'd like to apologize to anybody who was offended in any way, shape, or form for what Jim may or may not have done, but I guess there is video proof and pictures. I don't want to see them. Um, sorry that happened, and uh, I know that Jim did not mean to pull his drawers down as far as they did, and I'm not sure that they really saw much anyway if you get my drift. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're confirming that there was at least pants pulled down but we're not sure how much hog action took place. I have no idea how much hog action took place or didn't take place and, and do not want, and frankly don't want to know. I'm sorry it happened and I apologize. And, uh, it, nothing like that will ever happen again at any of our live shows. Well, and, uh, I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Lots of things happen unexpectedly. I mean, it's not like you were in the back, like calling spots, like, and about seven minutes in Jim, this is when you're going to pull your gimmick out. Yeah, no, we talked about nothing on that show, so it was it was just Jim and I telling stories and kind of free free forming it. Let me just ask, since we haven't talked about this, compare the level of ridiculous preparation for a live show you do with me versus one with Jim Cornette. Because in my head, you guys just meet at the building and say, "Let's call it in the ring, kid," and there's no prep at all. Exactly. <laughs> I said, I said, is there anything that you don't want to talk about? Well, goddamn, I just, what the fuck? I, you know, and, and of course, uh, everybody heard about the, the whole incident with Santino Morella during the week. That was the first thing that I was greeted with when I landed in Detroit was corny. Tell him, leave it, this son of a bitch. And I'm going to kill somebody and blah, 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 blah. And. I just, I just wanted Corny to be there at the show. We got him to the show, we got him calmed down, but I couldn't let it go. I had him tell his version of the story of what took place the day before with Santino Morella at the Cobo Hall, uh, Detroit Legends uh, reunion thing. But uh, if you want to hear that whole version and everything that happened there, you can go over and check out Corny's, uh, Corny's podcast. He's got a great one. And he'll tell you all about it. I, I like Santino. I like Cornette. I, I think they're both great guys and nothing against Santino at all in any way, shape, or form. I've always found him to be a good guy, so I'm not picking sides here. It's worth mentioning, uh, Santino, I believe, is a listener of the show. So uh, shout out to Santino as well. But, hey, the point is, you never know what's going to happen at a live <laughs> show. Do I have that right, Bruce? You absolutely do not. And we even had... Um, Bless his heart, Mickey Doyle, uh, come up and tell one of the worst stories in the history of the show. Um, the, the crowd actually, they, they, they started to get a little hostile on Mickey and it was a classic example of Cornette and I in the background, basically begging the crowd, stop booing. No, man, this is Mickey Doyle. He's an old timer. And without guys like Mickey Doyle, there wouldn't be guys like me and Jim Cornette. So um, well, we got through it. I don't know who Mickey Doyle is, but I can tell you this. He's not booked for November 19th, Sunday at one o'clock. It's right before survivor series. It's a joint WWE pay-per-view and the mega powers are going to explode. We're getting the band back together. You need to come see us live and in person, November 19th. We're going to be at the house of blues in Houston, Texas, uh, your hometown, obviously Houston needs a couple of smiles and we're going to bring them on November 19th. Right, Bruce? Exactly. Can't wait to be there and you get your tickets over at box of gimmicks.com. 
and everybody that lives in the Houston area, uh, pick up the Houston Press next week. Uh, I'll be on the cover, and my good friend Sean Pendergast did a uh, huge story. Good God, 4,400 words uh, about me and the podcast and our live show in Houston. Interviewed uh, Conrad Thompson. Uh, interviewed Dan Soder and Shuley and a lot of friends of the show. But uh, most importantly, be there uh, Sunday right before Survivor Series in Houston at the House of Blues. Go to boxofgimmicks.com to get your tickets. Most importantly, just be there. Come on. Uh, of course, we know what's coming next on the other side. No Mercy, 1999. All right, Bruce, it's time for What Happened When? The World Wrestling Federation ran No Mercy, 1999. Uh, this feels like, uh, our 900th pay-per-view show, uh, where we're covering the gunned arena in Cleveland, Ohio. You guys did a lot of major angles and storylines and major shows at the gunned arena. What was it about Cleveland that the WWE had a sweet spot for? Cleveland was a great market and the gunned arena was a friendly building. It was run by a friend of Vince's that used to run, I believe the Hartford civic center. Uh, in Connecticut, and they always gave us a great deal. It's a beautiful building. So, um, the market was good. Why not? Uh, the market was good. Let's run through this. We've got a sellout crowd here. 18,752 folks were on hand for the pay-per-view. And of course that was 17,430 paying a huge gate, $478,156. And merchandise is also on fire. It did $130,303 that night. Uh, Austin is still selling t-shirts like hotcakes, is he not? Oh, hell yeah. Austin 316 all day long. And just as a comparison, um, there wasn't a No Mercy the year before. This is the first year of No Mercy. But No Mercy the next year in 2000 was in Albany, New York, and it did 14,342 fans there. Let's talk about No Mercy in 99, because when I first told Dave Silva, who does our graphics and whatnot over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle, he threw up the poster for the May edition of No Mercy, which went down in Manchester, England on May 16th. So I found it interesting that you guys did a no mercy for a UK only pay-per-view in May. And then you did a traditional pay-per-view also called no mercy five months later. What's up with that? I like no mercy. No one in England will watch this. Um, really no rhyme or reason to it. It was a good name. It was something Vince like, so do it again, do it for a major pay-per-view. I think that the idea behind the UK pay-per-views was they were UK only and UK specific. So there wasn't a whole lot of cross promotion. There was, but not a whole lot. And, uh, Benson seemed to mind it. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the UK pay-per-view thing for a minute, because we've never really spent much time on this, but even here in October of 99, you guys are running another pay-per-view this time it's rebellion and it goes down on october 2nd so these are pretty close together here chat me up what was the thought behind running uk only pay-per-views how did that come about what details can you share with us it was an experiment with sky sports and sky sports just starting out their uh pay-per-view division in the united kingdom so we were 
the kings of pay-per-view everywhere else in the world. And the UK wanted us to be that standard bearer in uh, the UK for Sky Sports. We offered to to do several pay-per-views for them. Uh, they were getting our pay-per-views, what were pay-per-views in the United States. They were getting them for free on Sky right? in the UK. So now with the implement of the actual service, um, we were going to do specific just for them to be able to get a little, few more dollars out of the United Kingdom market. So go on over there, knock it out. And we also were experimenting more with not only doing pay-per-views, but also uh, doing television over there at the time. And I don't think we had done it yet. We didn't do that for another couple of years. Uh, what's the, the methodology behind putting together one of those UK-only pay-per-views? We don't want to advance any storylines that people stateside would miss, but we want to give them big matches. What's the thought in putting together a card like that? We wanted, we wanted to give the market something unique and something special for the market that true, if we were going to advance storylines, then it may be just one or two things that we could then bring back and put on the, uh, domestic shows. So yeah, we, we did do some things obviously on the, uh, UK pay-per-views, but at the same time we were looking just kind of as a status quo, let's have, it was a house show. It was a house show. And it was a special event for that market that uh, that we could put up there that people would pay for that the entire uh, country could see. Let's run down what that card was um, on October 2nd. Jeff Jarrett beat D'Lo to retain the IC title. Godfather beat Gangrel. Val beat Mark Henry. Ivory retained beating Luna, Tori, and Jacqueline. Chris Jericho beat the road dog. China beat Jarrett by DQ. So Jarrett was doing double duty that day. Uh, Kane beat the big show. Bulldog beat X-Pac. Edge and Christian beat the Acolytes and the Hollies in a triple threat match. And Triple H beat the Rock in a salad steel cage to win the world title. Triple H and the Rock on top for the belt in a cage feels like a pretty big attraction, as you like to say, right? Exactly. And it was to be able to give that match, uh, not just a regular match to a cage match, which was unusual to do in the United Kingdom. We had shipped the cage over there and set it all up. Obviously we left it over there, but it was to give them a unique attraction and something that we weren't doing elsewhere at the time. And so, and, and give them something added value that they would pay for. Any fun travel memories doing these pay-per-views? I don't know when we'll talk about a UK only pay-per-view, so maybe not this one in particular, but can you give us anything about, you know, traveling with the boys, hotel stays, going out after putting together a card, something that went wrong, any sort of UK pay-per-views you could start us off with here for, for whatever reason, it, it always seemed that whenever we went overseas, that something ticked in people's heads and, and. I don't know what it was, but your behavior all of a sudden became erratic or different than it normally would be. Don't ask me why, but it, it's kind of like, Hey, you're in international waters. It doesn't count. So you can drink a little more, you could party a little more and think you can get away with a lot more stuff. And it just seemed like everybody was 
maybe it's a time change. Maybe it's the accent. I don't know what the hell it is, but it always seemed like people that didn't ordinarily go out went out. Uh, people that didn't ordinarily get in trouble were getting in trouble. And it just was a, a completely different atmosphere because all the boys were on a plane instead of being on a plane for a couple of hours. Now you're on a plane for six, seven, eight hours at a time with each other. You get bored. You start wanting to cut people's hair off. Uh, you want to shave eyebrows. You want to uh, steal shoes. You want to have fun. So there were always some kind of story from something that happened overseas that wouldn't necessarily happen in the States. And the other part about it, everybody had to travel together. So the talent was all together. They all had to stay at the same hotel. They were on buses. It was a different atmosphere than their norm in the States. Well, let's talk about what got us here. Uh, if you haven't already, check out Unforgiven 1999, which is available in the archives. It's the pay-per-view the month prior. Uh, and we had a great episode in there. We got lots of little side stories about storylines and angles that were going on. Uh, one of our more underrated episodes. But if you haven't heard that one, uh, that would be a good place to start before maybe you keep going down the road on this one. Uh, a quick recap, of course, Triple H wins the belt there. Uh, he becomes the world champion for the second time, winning a six-pack challenge, and this had all the firepower you might need. The Rock, British Bulldog, Kane, Mankind, Big Show, and Steve Austin was the enforcer. Of course, Steve Austin is here in the main event for this pay-per-view. Uh, the Monday Night Wars are, of course, in full swing, uh, but the WWF is in firm control at this time. Uh, the week before No Mercy, Raw did a 6.1, and Nitro did a 2.6. The night after No Mercy, Raw did a 5.4, and Nitro did a 3.3. So going into the pay-per-view, it feels like just utter dominance. It is the week after, too, but all of a sudden, it feels like there has been uh, a a, a little bit of a swing in momentum, maybe. And a lot of that is credited to Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara signing with WCW. Now, we've talked about that extensively on our Vince Russo show but we should mention that while Unforgiven 99 was his last pay-per-view, No Mercy 99 is the first pay-per-view where Vince is Vince Russo is not a part of the company. How big of an impact do you think that had here, Bruce? I think that there was definitely an impact felt because we were in a state of flux from a creative standpoint. <coughs> Sorry, didn't mean to cough in your face, but... Vince McMahon was looking for what's, what's the next team. Who's going to be the next person to help me out here. And there were a lot of people vying for that position. And there was a lot of just kind of doing the status quo, uh, trying to get finish up stories that had already been started. This was the last pay-per-view that Russo had booked that we had actually had television written getting us to. And I think there was an attempt to continue the stories to make what we had in place make sense and then kind of go new from there. But inside the office, I think there was a lot of um, inner turmoil. Who's with us? Who isn't? Right. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, 
which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. At that point, it doesn't feel, and we covered this on the Russo episode, uh, Russo did not have a contract with the company, so he was free to go. When this happens, does Vince go into panic mode and start double-checking contracts for everybody of any sort of significance in the company? Well, there, there were not any contracts. An employee doesn't have a contract. They're not a, a contracted um, person. So there was no, there had never been any reason to have a contract with anyone. You know, you're an employee. There wasn't anything done. So what Vince did was he went back in and did what a lot of big companies do with intellectual properties is they go in and they uh, create non-compete clauses. Uh-huh. So if someone leaves of their own volition that they can't go work for a direct competitor for X amount of days. Let me ask it you was this. All- when did the non-compete first become introduced into the company? Because it existed for performers prior to this. Who smartened Vince up to that? And when did he start to really make that kind of the new standard for the company? Do you remember? Well, as far as employees, it started right here. As far as talent, I think he always had some kind of non-compete in the contracts. But for employees, he asked everyone to sign a a non-compete clause, something that says, again, if they leave the company on their own volition, that they can't go leave and go directly work for a competitor. Um, For X amount of months or days or whatever. Correct. 90 days, 60 days, uh, and I forget what it was. I think it was 90 days. Uh, so chat me up. Do you remember there being a wrestler in particular where the non-compete thing would have been a real catalyst for a conversation? Obviously we've covered Rick rude and him not being on paper while he was appearing on TV. We did that in our Rick rude episode. Was there anybody else though, that you could think? Not, not as far as a wrestler that I remember off the, off the top of my head, because for the most part, rude was a special deal. Rude was somebody they wanted. And we were doing daily deals with Rick rude every day that he appeared, he signed a contract, um, as for on the wrestling side at this, at this time, uh, obviously Jeff Jarrett's contract was coming up and and he had not been re-signed, but the the non-compete on that side was fairly well covered and it was now an issue of you don't think about your CFO or your head of marketing leaving you and going to work for the competitor, going to work for uh, Ted Turner at the time. That, that wasn't something we were really thinking about. And Vince got caught with his pants down um, with Russo and Ed Ferrara, just getting up in the middle of the night and leaving. So he wanted to protect that and came in and, and especially those of us that were, uh, on the wrestling side of things, 
he had a non-compete drawn up and asked us to sign him. Do you remember anybody uh, having any hesitation or pushback about doing such? Yeah. Terry Taylor, uh, Terry Taylor didn't want to sign it. Terry Taylor, uh, refused to sign it. And it was, it was interesting because to, to the man, uh, everyone else in the company were eager to sign it when they were put in front of them. Um, I know we had lawyers look at them, but, uh, for the most part signed it when it was put in front. I signed it when it was put in front of me. I believe Jim Ross signed it when it was put in front of him. Howard Finkel signed it when it was put in front of him. Uh, Terry didn't, Terry didn't want to sign it and argued that, well, if something happens to me here, I want to be able to go back to, uh, Atlanta and go back to work for WCW and Vince felt, well, why are you even thinking about that right now? If you're, if you're here and you're with us, then why would you even thinking about going back to work for Atlanta? Uh, Terry wanted to be the, the, the man, he wanted to be the head writer. He wanted to be the head booker. He wanted to be the guy, the second in command of Vince McMahon. And he said that if Vince made him the second in command, then he would sign the non-compete. And Vince wasn't willing to do that. Are you in the room when he asked for that? Uh, no. And Vince just tells you after the fact he wanted to be second command. Terry told me that. So you've had, we've talked a lot about Terry and Vince, well, I, I, to answer your question. Yes. Vince did tell me that. And Terry told me that who, in your opinion, or I guess who did Vince believe to be in second command at that point? At that point, it was Jim Ross. So. Terry Taylor wanted the JR spot. Terry Taylor wanted the JR J- Terry Taylor in his mind. He wanted the Vin- what he considered the Vince Russo spot. He wanted to be the head TV writer and book the towns as well. JR was booking the towns. Russo was writing the, uh, the television with Vince and JR was in charge of talent relations. Terry wanted all of that. That's my recollection. Um, does he ask for a raise or does he just want the title? You know, I'm sure Terry asked for a raise. I don't know specifically, um, but I would also believe that Terry probably would have been happy with just the title. Yeah. So chat me up. How does this conversation go down? Um, you know, you, you, you said that Terry told you this and, and we haven't talked about Terry much here on the show, but what we have talked about was that you guys didn't always have the best relationship. What was your relationship like at this point with Terry Taylor? It was a business relationship. Terry was there, uh, helping out with creative and I was there on the talent relations side, doing the developmental talent. And again, also trying to help out in creative where I could, um, Terry, you know, we had a relationship. It just was what it was. It was all business. And Terry felt that he was the only one that could step into that position and and that's what he wanted. And for him to stay, he wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the person in charge. So Vince McMahon at the time was in no hurry to bring anyone in and put anyone in charge. He felt that he had given an awful lot of uh, leeway to Vince Russo. And he felt that he had relied an awful lot on Vince Russo at the time. And for Russo to leave the way that he did, it hurt him. And he wanted to build 
you know, maybe build a wall and build a, a protection so that that couldn't happen again. Uh, Brian Gewertz tells the story of, you know, when, when Vince Russo left, that that was the turning point in Vince McMahon's head that he would never let that happen again, that he would create a team and he would never have just one or two key people in that role that he always wanted to have a team. So if one person left, no big deal, the rest of the team just carries on. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know a lot of times people want to debate and, and argue that a team isn't necessary and it was better went back way back when blah, blah, blah. But the logic you just laid out makes a lot of sense. Um, at that time, what was the feeling about Ed? Because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Ed. We've talked a lot about Vince Russo. What was, what was Vince and the rest of the company? Some of the boys give us something about Ed that, cause it feels like he kind of flies under the radar. It's almost like he's the tag along. He's the Marty Janetti. He's, uh, you know, that, that type of deal. Ed was a, a, a talented guy, but I think the general feeling of Ed was that he was, he was just exactly how you just laid him out. He was the tag along to Vince Russo, a really nice guy. Like I said, but not, no threat. It wasn't something where if Vince Russo left and we were left with Ed and, and Ed didn't, I don't think Ed would have been the head writer. Do you remember think- an idea? or an angle or a gimmick or something you can share with us that you can point to and say, Oh, that was Ed's and it was awesome. No, I can't. Do you remember something that was Ed's that wasn't awesome? That was a miss. No, because it was always presented as is Russo and Ed was always presenting, uh, Vince's ideas. So, and not being with them 24 seven, I never really saw anything that he brought up and or didn't. Do you feel like Vince Russo's personality, because he does have a big personality, um, allowed him to sort of take credit for all of Ed's ideas and Ed was comfortable just kind of being behind the scenes? I could see that happening. I don't know if that is accurate or not, um, because Vince Russo is very bullheaded and very strong and he has specific ideas. Maybe Ed helped get some of those out, um, but... Russo did usually present them as his ideas. I just can't think of anything at all that was, Hey, you know, that was Ed's idea. Like I can look at people that came after and, and I can look at Tommy Blanche and go, Hey, that was Blanche's idea. Brian Gortz. That was Brian's idea. Michael Hayes. That was Michael's idea. Um, not with, not with Ed. I, I really don't know. Let's talk about something you said a minute ago that I want to circle back to. You said talking about Vince McMahon and not really wanting to bring anybody in because of the whole Russo thing. You talked about Russo's departure and you said it hurt him. I can't help, but feel like you mean personally, like emotionally, it just hurt his feelings. It did. That, that is what I meant. That's not something we talk about a lot here on the show because this is a guy we always position as being mad as at his own sneezes. So when we're talking about someone having their feelings hurt, that's not normally the way we characterize a conversation with Vince McMahon. Did you have a specific conversation about this Russo jump hurting Vince's feelings? 
I did. And, you know, Vince is, is a proud guy. He's, but at the same time, he'll, he will admit when his, his feelings were hurt or, you know, something kind of got to him and this did it, it was, he felt that he had given Russo an awful lot and entrusted Vince Russo and for Russo to leave the way that he did, it did hurt Vince's feelings. Vince, regardless of how he really is, um, he sees himself as a, a very understanding, open and approachable and caring guy. And I used to say to Vince, Vince, you're intimidating. People are intimidated to come talk. God damn it. I'm not intimidating. Let's see what I mean. Um, so I can see Russo's side on not wanting to go and have that, uh, discussion with Vince once he made the decision. But I, I also, um, can see Vince McMahon's side. And I have gone to Vince with, with some of those topics from time to time. And he's bitten my head off. He's apologized after the fact, but at least I went and talked to him. I know people do. And that is what Vince McMahon was hurt about that. Russo didn't come and, and speak to him face to face. Just hurt his feelings that he left. It it was like a breakup. Let's talk about the transition because when Vince kind of has this a moment of clarity. And he says, this will never happen again. And he strengthens his resolve to make sure that he's never totally dependent on one person ever again. Do you remember there being a conversation where we're going to start looking outside for writers because the person who steps into the Vince Russo spot is Tommy Blancha and he was not from wrestling. Correct. Correct. And that process had already started because Vince McMahon had told Russo, I want more help. I want you to have more help. I want, uh, some different writers in, I want people from outside of the wrestling business that have a working knowledge of the wrestling business, but I want somebody from the entertainment industry. Uh, Tommy Blancha, I believe was hired by Vince Russo. So he was going to be brought on and be made a part of the writing team. And then when Blancha started, that was Russo and, uh, Ferrara's last week. So, so I don't think that Russo, I don't think Russo ever worked with Blancha. Where does, um, and I know a lot of people listening who are hardcore fans are not going to be familiar with the name Tommy Blancha. So I'm glad we're spending some time on this. Now, if you came to our live show in LA, you would have met Tommy. He was awesome. Uh, catch us up about Blancha. What was his background? How did you guys know who he was or that maybe he could be capable at this. How does that relationship come to be? At the time, Tommy was working on the Conan O'Brien show. And I believe that Russo may have met him when one of the guys, uh, did Conan O'Brien and they, they talked back and forth, uh, with Blancha about some different things and different skits they could do with Conan and the talent. Don't remember who the talent was, but. Tommy, I believe was approached that way. And then at the same time, uh, Brian Gewertz, who had worked out in Hollywood and had been doing stuff with, um, Jenny McCarthy at the time working on her show. And he had done some things in MTV. So there were these new, this new breed of writer that was going to be coming in to help Russo. And I don't know if Russo felt that was a threat or not, or just, you know, that the timing of the, 
offer at WCW came. Uh, I, I, I can't begin to explain what his, his true motivation was to leave, but that, it, that feeling was already there. Vince wanting an outsider's um, opinion, wanting someone from the entertainment world to come into our world and start helping uh, script a lot of the television shows, format and script. How do you guys find them? Is this uh, a recruiting agency that you use? Is someone in the front office just making calls based on people you guys have had interactions with? Who's kind of making this first call? Extending the olive branch of sorts. A lot in a lot of a lot of times. Um, for example, when Vince and I were doing a shoot at Universal Studios, there was a a producer there that worked for Univer. He was a freelance for Universal Studios that was putting the the shoot together for us. And he worked really well with our guys, and and he had his stuff together. And I tried to hire him on the spot. So there's those instances, uh, human resources. We were putting ads in the trades. We were putting ads in the Hollywood reporter and variety. We had headhunters that specialized in specific roles, specific talent that they would go out and they would try and find some of the best writers in Hollywood. It was a lot of different ways. As far as Tommy Blanche, his came from, um, working on Conan O'Brien and, and working with him and he got it and they liked some of the stuff that he did. So they said, would you be interested in coming over and doing this? I feel like I should mention, uh, if you're just hearing about Tommy Blanche for the first time, uh, and a lot, I know a lot of you are because he kind of flew under the radar. We should remind you that Tommy Blanche has a, a phenomenal 10 minute podcast with Will Sasso. They were both at our LA show. You can check it out. Just look for the 10 minute podcast. Uh, it really is 10 minutes and it's Tommy Blanche, Will Sasso and their bud, uh, just telling stories and riffing and, uh, it's hilarious. So I can't recommend it enough. Let's talk about, you know, Blanche kind of going from Conan O'Brien and I'm, I'm sure he's sitting at a desk and going into an office and, uh, doing that usual television production workflow. And now he's thrown into this crazy world of wrestling. How did he adapt? Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. I thought he adapted really well. I thought that he came in, he, he didn't come in pretending to know it all. He came in wanting to learn and he came in with ideas and he was, he didn't have a pride of authorship. Right. 
It wasn't, oh my God, this is the, you, you got to do my idea or else. He came in with an attitude of what if, you know, didn't have to tell him he, he got it and he had some funny and good ideas, but for the beginning, Tommy sat back and observed for a long time before Tommy was really thrown in and before he was really made a part of the process. So he would just sit back and, and observe. We didn't even know that there was a Tommy Blanche for a few weeks. Really? He was just before, hanging out being quiet. Yeah. He was hanging out being quiet, but he wasn't a part of when, when it came nut cutting time and we were actually writing the television and uh, doing the pay-per-views. He wasn't a part of those with us per se. He would go and meet with Vince and, and Vince would go over things with him and pick his brain and get his ideas. And Vince wanted to be comfortable with him first before he threw him into everybody else. So he's there and Vince never smartens you up. You don't even know this guy has been hired. We knew somebody was hired. We just didn't know when he was going to start and be, be a part of the process. I got you. Um, when do you remember him being a part, becoming a part of the process? Is there a particular show or arena or paper? I think or? right after this pay-per-view, right after no mercy. Okay. Um, I don't know when we'll talk about Tommy Blanche again. Now the last uh, the first time I said that about Jerry Jarrett, he became a staple on the show. So maybe I won't jinx it here. Chat me up. Some of the more memorable angles or moments in company history that we could circle back and say that was Tommy Blanche. Tommy Blanche uh, was the one that came up with the idea to hit Steve Austin with a car when we yeah. needed to get Steve out of commission for a while. Tommy Blanche was the doctor that delivered the hand. <laughs> May Young's pregnancy. That's so awesome. Uh, Tom, Tommy was responsible for a lot of the uh, sexual chocolate with Mark Henry. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff with, uh, you know, Brian Gewertz and Tommy Blanche as a team, they came up with some, some pretty good stuff during their time. So when does Brian start with the company? Brian started shortly after that as well. And I don't really remember the time frame, but, uh, I'll find out and I'll get that for you next week. I'll call Brian's happy ass and say, Hey, little bastard, when'd you start with wrestling business? Because Brian was working for MTV. And I remember, I remember Brian's first day coming in and he was in the locker room with a Yankees baseball cap on. No, it wasn't. I said that because he's a big Mets fan, but he was wearing New York Mets baseball cap and he looked like a 12 year old kid. Right. And Ron Simmons just like, yeah, who the hell are you? Yo, yo, why are you in the dressing room? And Brian trying to, trying to fit in, didn't fit in. He could be a little awkward at times, but I'll get the Brian works. I'll get the lowdown for you next week. Well, I look forward to us talking about Brian, uh, long form because it feels like, you know, he's probably the most, um, I don't know that I should say underrated. I just feel like for all of Vince Russo's contributions to the business, he gets his credit 10 times fold, good, bad, and indifferent, but almost no one talks about Brian and Brian really was the straw that stirred the drink for like a dozen years or more. Right. Oh my God. Brian, Brian was a little genius, uh, still is a genius. And Brian was the one that 
that formatted the show, put Raw together for so long, and took that brunt. He had a great way with Vince. He had a great way with Stephanie. And he did the rock stuff. Obviously he's, he's still, uh, working with the rock in charge of seven bucks, not in charge of seven bucks, but in charge of their television production and creative on that side. Um, so Brian is an unsung hero and Brian doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves that other people, because he doesn't go out and brag about it. He doesn't go out and say, Oh, that was my idea. He doesn't go out and say, oh, I came up with that. He just moves along. He knows, he knows that Vince had to bless it. He knows that he knows what he did. He doesn't have to tell people. Uh, let's move on. We'll come back to Brian. I'm sure uh, he's probably going to get his, his own episode at some point. Gorilla Monsoon passes away on October 6th. We talked about this, uh, briefly on our unforgiven show, and we just did a phenomenal tribute episode to Bobby Heenan a few weeks back. Any other memories or short stories you'd like to share about Gorilla Monsoon here? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I'd, I've shared it, but all the way up into the end, Gorilla was an avid gambler and Gorilla loved to bet on anything. And even on Gorilla's quote, deathbed, Gorilla was calling the guys at the studio saying, is there a game tonight? Is there anything? Is there a golf game, a badminton game? Is there a chess tournament? Is there something that I can bet on? all the way up until the end. Um, but it, it was gorilla monsoon had a, uh, game room in his house and no one will know this name. And I, I hope that there are some old timers that will remember this. There was an old wrestler by the name of bull Ramus and bull Ramus. He was mainly famous in, in Texas and California. But Bull also worked in the Northeast for Vince Sr. for many years. And Monsoon had a game room in his home in New Jersey. And on the wall in the game room was uh, a plaque that said, This room donated by Bull Ramus. Meaning that Monsoon used to beat Bull Ramus at cribbage and poker and everything under the sun. And the Bull Ramus is with the winnings from Bull Ramus uh, paid for this room. And Gino invites him to his house. And Bull Ramus thought that was the nicest thing that, you know, Monsoon had a picture of him up on his line. He goes, Oh, Gino, that's so nice. You got my, my picture in your game room. That's so nice. And then he reads <laughs> the little plaque underneath it. This room paid for by the donations of Bull Ramus. And Bull just absolutely went nuts. But uh, Manuel Bull Ramos, a big star back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, sweetheart of a guy. But that was the kind of guy that Gorilla Monsoon was, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Well, that's a great story. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that you've told that one before, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, I don't know that a lot of people know that Gorilla Monsoon used to own part of the worldwide wrestling federation, uh, catch everybody up on how that whole deal went down. Gorilla monsoon, Vince McMahon, senior, uh, Arnold Skoland and, um, Phil Zacco, I believe it was either Phil Zacco or toots Mont. They all owned a, a portion of capital wrestling, which was the parent company to the WWWF. And 
for most people, they viewed that as Vince McMahon, the father, uh, as his company. So when Vince, Vincent Kennedy McMahon came in and bought the company, those were all the people that Vince had to pay off to finally own the company. And the, the payoff was after WrestleMania one, that Vince had to make this huge balloon payment to every one of the partners. And if Vince were to miss a single payment, then the partners were able to take the company back in full. No questions asked. And obviously, as history will tell you, Vince was able to make every payment, make his big balloon payment after WrestleMania one and took the company over. But yeah, Monsoon was one of the owners. Uh, let's talk about the company at the time, because it's hotter than ever and mainstream media is taking note. Business week actually ran a story that covered the phenomenal impact that wrestling specifically the WWF had had on television. And at the time, a lot of you may remember Seinfeld just aired its last episode. So Seinfeld's going away and all of a sudden NBC is dropping off. So UPN is trying to ramp up and they're trying to make a big push and they're doing pretty well. Thanks to the new SmackDown product business week writes that, um, the man responsible for this surge is stone cold. Steve Phillips, your thoughts. Oh, Steve was over like a million bucks. He had this, uh, this Phillip drop thing that he did. It was like a screwdriver type move, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, exactly. on, it was on the head. If I remember. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he late, he, he later went on to captain the Mersk and, uh, take down Somalian pirates. <laughs> a lot of, uh, what would have been better would have been, cause you know what they did here is they combined stone Phillips and Steve Austin. And so Stone Cold Steve Austin and Stone Phillips have somehow merged into Stone Cold Steve Phillips. That's hilarious to me. So the I go- love Stone Cold Steve Phillips. It's phenomenal. I mean, and I think we're technically okay to sell shirts like that, but maybe not. I, I feel like we should also mention uh, that the WWE has taken some chances here uh, going into No Mercy because they run the Georgia Dome. And, and let's remember that the WCW Nitro that set all the records was in July of 98. Well, here we are in October of 99 and the WWF's coming to town. It's October 11th. They draw 33,375 folks. The gate is an incredible $861,000. It's one of the top 10 largest crowds in the history of American pro wrestling. And it's for a fucking raw. It's unbelievable. This is up here. With the WrestleMania at the Silver Dome, WrestleMania three, the Royal Rumble uh, at the Alamo Dome in '97 that we've covered in our archives, the Indianapolis Hoosier Dome, WrestleMania eight, uh, the 1980 Shea Stadium show. I mean, this is a monster show. What goes into the decision making of, hey, let's run the Georgia Dome? It was time. It was time to go back to Atlanta. We hadn't run Atlanta in a t- in a long time. Raw was doing well, so the opportunity presented itself. Why not run the Georgia Dome? So we we cut it just about in half when we did it, and we we put a big divider up in in the middle of the 
uh, dome. And we use the, the second half for a lot of our staging and parked a lot of our trucks out there. So it was, we didn't go in saying, Hey, we're going to do 70,000 people or whatever the hell it, it held. We went in under the auspices that we were going to draw 30,000 people. So we were very happy with the outcome and going back to Atlanta in a big way. So it was, it was just time. That was it. And, uh, the opportunity presented itself to give you a heads up too. that February, February 8th, uh, they set an all time raw and Monday night war attendance record at the time they ran the sky dome in Toronto, uh, for 41,432 folks. And again, this is for raw. So there's just a handful of Raws, two Raws in 1999 drew 75,000 people. That sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Uh, on that show, we should mention uh, this this Georgia Dome show. We got Billy Gunn and Crash Holly working together. Ivory was supposed to wrestle May Young, but Mula instead attacks her. We see Edge and Christian wrestle the Hardys to a double countout. X-Pac pins Farouk. Uh, Mark Henry has an appointment with a new sex therapist. Dr. Andrea early, uh, is Dr. Andrea early a rib on somebody in the back? Where does this name come from? I have zero, zero knowledge. I, I, I have absolutely no idea where the hell that name came from. The headbangers beat Jericho and Mr. Hughes. This is when Jericho, uh, hit Hughes and then walks out. Uh, big show finds out that his dad has inoperable cancer. And Meltzer wondered if maybe this had something to do with Gorilla or Brian Hildebrand because they're using a cancer angle. When people in wrestling have cancer, it feels a little, well, you know, Godfather beat Mark Henry Bossman comes out and is getting on show about his dad and show comes out, but Bossman laid him out with the nightstick and, uh, Al Snow comes in to make the save, but Bossman lays him out too. And Meltzer wrote at the time, they're paying Big Show $950,000 a year for this spot on the card. We talked about Tommy Blancha earlier, but Tommy Blancha was involved in a Big Show boss man angle, was he not? <laughs> Tommy was the one that was, uh, I believe, supposed to shoot the scene with Big Boss Man coming into the funeral of Big Show's father. And the bastard didn't make it. And that was me. So on a Sunday afternoon in Fairfield, Connecticut, when beautiful Sunday afternoon, I might add really nice day when people would go and, and kids get in the car and they go to visit their loved ones at the funeral and put flowers on the, their final resting place. There was a mock funeral with a guy in a, uh, Blues Brothers police car with big speaker on the top of it going around going, ha ha, your dad's dead. Hey, hey, big show, your dad is dead. Ha ha, your dad is dead. And, um, yeah. So if you, if you really want to take a, take a look and, and, and examine the absolute absurd, pull up the big boss man's father's funeral. I mean, not big boss man, the big show's father's funeral. And, and know that at the time that there were people paying respects to their loved one all around us, that it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon in Fairfield, Connecticut. And, um, no one told big show to jump on the casket or for boss man to tear out through the cemetery the way that he did. 
But hey, there you go. Made great TV. No doubt about that. Uh, also on that show, we've got Austin and Jim Ross wrestling Triple H in China. Doesn't that seem weird in hindsight? Um, let's talk a little bit about the angle that they did here because we would see Jarrett push China off a ramp where she was stuffed inside a laundry crate. Any memories of any of this card I just ran down Austin and Jr. tagging, uh, China getting pushed off the ramp in a, in a laundry crate, any of this ringing a bell? <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, yes. As a matter of fact, um, again, the, the absurd, we were doing so many crazy things. And, and a lot of this was on the heels of of Russo, you know, leaving and, and some of it, he was involved with some of it. He wasn't, uh, that they had laid out, but I remember the, the brawl with Austin and triple H, which was fabulous, man. They went all over the building and there's a famous concession stand brawl. I believe it was Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, yeah. The one you're talking about, I think there were several, but I think the one you're about to talk about is, uh, the one with Onita. On one side, it's Ricky Morton and Eddie Gilbert, and uh, I forget who was tagging with Onita. But they had several of these. But the one you're talking about is where there's glass involved, right? Yeah, and and the guy that tagged with Onita was Masafuchi. And Masafuchi got hit over the head with a jar of mustard, and the shard of glass went in his ear. And he stands there screaming as you see blood shooting out of his ear. But that was a famous concession stand brawl that I think a lot of people over the years have tried to recreate and, you know, just go out and do. And that's what we were doing here. It was an opportunity to brawl all over the building and have a unique fight that gets you out of the ringside area and get you out of the backstage area as well. But it was a great brawl. And, um, it was also during the time that Jeff Jarrett was talking about women having a place in the home. So what other better place to put China than in a laundry cart. <laughs> uh, this raw is not done yet. Most famously, you've got rock and mankind taking on Val Venus and the British bulldog. Here's what Meltzer wrote. Rock put a platter of what was purportedly dog crap from bulldogs backstage that mankind scooped into a nice platter, brought it to the ring with Earl Hebner selling the smell big time. He gave bulldog the rock bottom into the dog crap. Remember the remark Brett made in a column not all that long ago about a bulldog rolling around in shit and being so stupid to like it. Clearly that's where this idea came from. Uh, so I don't know when I'll get to say this again, who booked this shit. (laughs) This is a Vince McMahon specialty. There's poopy everywhere. There is. Okay. This is a Vince McMahon classic quote. There is nothing funnier than dog shit. Dog shit on a shoe and you gotta get a stick and get it off and it's on. It gets everywhere. Yeah. Dog shit. Uh, what type of shit did you use here? Was this shoot shit or was this working shit? Oh, uh, this was mainly uh baby Ruth and, um, hundred thousand dollar bars and a lot of, lot of grass and corn and who uh, it was a variety. It was actually made and molded. 
you know, it, it's amazing to me that you guys have someone making shit when you could have just called Xbox, right? This is true. Well, we, we, and, and we actually had bulldogs there that were actually making shit. So who's tasked with making the shit? Is this your magic man, Richie Posner? Richie Posner made the shit. Richie and Richie Posner and, uh, <laughs> God, what was the other guy's name there? Um, uh, Nick doll. That's a shirt, man. Yeah. We've talked about all the props that he's made over the year and Richie Posner made the shit. Should be a shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, kind of so form, hand, hand forming each little turd and putting the right amount of grass in it and just the right amount of everything in it. Hypothetically speaking, what might it sound like if Richie Posner was busy handcrafting the shit and Vince McMahon is growing impatient because this segment is, is supposed to be happening very quickly. And there's a conversation back and forth about how we're short on time. God damn it, Richie. Are you done with the shit yet? If you need me, I'll make some for you right now. God damn it. Hurry up. No, God. In my head, Posner's over there patting out patties as fast as he can. I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. This <laughs> is hilarious to me. This one needs more grass, sir. <laughs> yeah. Where's the corn? This isn't an adequate turd. Uh, uh, the- but sir, uh, dogs don't eat corn. I want corn. I want peas. <laughs> I want, God damn it. Give me some color in the poop. Oh, that's so awesome. So as if we're not done with silliness in this show at the end of raw, Austin and triple H are still fighting and Austin throws him into a room with a rattlesnake and locks him in. Whose idea is the snake? I think originally uh, it was either Hunter or Steve's and, and Vince loved it. We of course had to get the rattlesnake. The, what I remember most about it, unfortunately, was because we did it, uh, we did it live. So when, and we rehearsed the hell out of it because the camera and you, you had to have a, a glass barrier, obviously between the rattlesnake and where triple H was. And we cleaned it. We did everything as, is absolute best we could for the, um, the glass panel in between and rehearsed it nine times, God, a hundred times, just so that you wouldn't see the reflection of the camera in the glass. And we had it just, I mean, absolutely perfect where it looked great. And of course we go live and when Hunter goes in, you didn't see the camera, but you saw Hunter's reflection of himself in, in there. And that was all Vince. Ah! See the reflection. What the fuck? And we rehearsed it. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting to say the least, but put a rattlesnake back there. Yeah. It's always a lot of fun to just put a rattlesnake loose in a locker room. Um, do you remember any of the boys having a particular reaction one way or another to a real rattlesnake being in the room? Um, nobody wanted to be near it. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, nobody wanted to be anywhere near the shooting of it because the, the the top of the glass was not that high. And my fear was we had the snake contained. I mean, it was contained. It couldn't get out. And it was trained to attack. So it was it was it was trained to uh strike. lunge and strike. So if it saw something, it would strike. 
And it worked every single time. And every single time we threw Hunter in front of it, it would strike. So the, my fear was that the damn thing would go up over the glass. Yeah. Um, it didn't, but yeah, there's a little bit of fear. There guy, most people don't like snakes. I'm at the top of that list. So we get the, uh, the deal here where the snake bites Hunter and he shows up, I believe on SmackDown and he's got this horrendous snake bite on his face. Catch me up. What do you think of this makeup that Hunter's wearing here? I thought it looked great. No, you didn't. Did you really? I thought it was excellent. Oh my God. Um, you know, it was what it was. It's and fucking awful. When Vince sees the makeup, does he think, I mean, he's got to realize what we realize. This is, this is awful, right? Well, we're, we're hoping that it's passable enough for television. And of course it has to look like makeup so he can tear it off at the end. Right. So it was that prosthetic, you know, uh, uh, rubber stuff. It looks like it's from fucking party city. I mean, it looks like you're, you're 12 year old. It's not from party sitter city. It was from snakes bites are us makeup. Damn it. Okay. Um, beautiful. What did Austin think of the makeup? Austin's always, you know, not short on opinions. (laughs) What did he think of this? I think we all, I think we all kind of went, uh, it, it looked about as good as, uh, Jillian's mole looked many years later, but we hope, again, we just kind of hope that if we shot it a certain way that the television audience wouldn't notice how bad it looked, I guess y'all did, huh? Uh, so let's talk about what's going on kind of outside of the spotlight. Meltzer reports in the October 18th observer that a and E is working on a documentary for Owen Hart that was going to air on November 16th. And of course this is just on the heels of his untimely uh, death. What was the company's take on a and E producing an Owen Hart documentary? It had to feel like something that Vince wouldn't be really excited about. Not really. No, we, it was too new. You know, it was, it was way too fresh and didn't feel that it would be, it was just opening up more old wounds. Uh, chat me up about, uh, Steve Austin on Nash bridges. He had recently, uh, filmed some more episodes and they were supposed to air on October 22nd. Was this kind of his first foray into acting? Did he enjoy it? How did it come about? What can you tell us about Austin on Nash bridges? Well, Austin was, uh, had the opportunity to come out and do it. It was a special character and the character on Nash bridges was about as close to stone cold, uh, Steve Phillips as you can get or stone cold, Steve Austin. So Steve liked it because it was able to essentially be. Steve Austin on Nash bridges. There was even talk at this time that, uh, that Steve would maybe get a spinoff series with this character off of Nash bridges. They were talking about doing a series just with Steve's character. So there were a lot of different things, but Steve was focused on wrestling. Steve wanted to continue. He felt he still had several years left in the wrestling world. And that's what he wanted to focus on. He had a good time. I think out of this, that the, the, the best thing that came out of this was Steve was, uh, in the trailer with, uh, Don Johnson and Don is 
talking with Steve and they were, they were friendly and having a good time. And while they were in there talking, one of the production assistants came in and said, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Johnson, they're going to be ready for you on the set in five minutes. So about five minutes goes by and Don Johnson gets ready and goes walking out. He's walking out to the set. Steve's walking with him and the same production assistant comes up to Don Johnson and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson. They're, they're not ready yet. It's, it's probably going to be about another 15, 20 minutes. And Don Johnson looks at the kid and says, oh, hell, don't make me have to learn your name. And I stole that phrase and I have used that. I don't know how many times ever since, because I just thought that was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. Don't make me have to learn your name. What a fucking asshole. What? That's such an asshole comment. And it, it, it really fits your personality that you think exactly. is a great line. Wow. To treat people like that. Okay. Uh, at one point it's reported in the observer that there was a plan for the rock to beat triple H for the title on the September 27th raw. That one went down in Greensboro, but according to Dave, triple H complained loudly enough about the idea that it was next. Any memories of this September 27th raw in Greensboro and triple H maybe getting the finish changed. I don't ever remember wanting to change the title during that time. Okay. Uh, probably chalk that one up to rumor and innuendo. Meltzer also reported that ECW's Miss Congeniality would be starting in about a month. Uh, it was reported here that she was trained by the Hardy Boys and is said to be a good bump taker. For those of you who haven't put it together, she would go on to be known as Lita. What do you remember about Lita first coming into the company and becoming signed? Who recommended her? Uh, what did Vince think? Chat us up about Lita coming into the company. I first saw Lita from, uh, Dory Funk, Dory Funk had her at his Funkin conservatory at his dojo down in Tampa and he had, they had taken a lot of pictures and she had been down there working. So, uh, Dory had sent some pictures in and said, Hey, this, this girl's name, Amy Dumas, she's going to be going in and working with ECW during this time, but you should really check her out. So we saw her. Um, I remember we called her first, asked what she was doing. She said she was going to go in and do the ECW thing. I said, okay, well, if you've already committed to that, please do that. I called Paul, asked Paul what he had planned. He said he really didn't have anything planned for long-term. So, okay, well, we're thinking about maybe bringing her in. And then we found out that, uh, she was friends with the Hardys and, she, we saw her work back and forth and Jim Ross and I brought her up, had a meeting with her and decided we wanted to bring her in. The initial idea was to package her because she spoke Spanish. She was familiar with the Lucha. She had trained in Mexico as well and been working down there for quite some time. We had this guy, uh, Papi Chulo, who was coming in, uh, Mr. Aguilera and he couldn't speak. English. So we thought, well, Hey man, let's put a good looking girl with him who speaks both Spanish and English. And that's how Lita was born. That was the idea behind bringing Lita in, in the first place. Uh, the funks recommended her. She was working, uh, starting ECW and we needed a mouthpiece for Papi Chulo. I'm sure we're going to get a Lita episode at some point in the future. Uh, let's talk about Taz because it's reported in the observer here. 
that Taz vignettes are set to start airing in November and they're going to build up for a January debut. Of course, he's just finished up uh, with ECW here, dropping the belt and he's on his way in. Meltzer wrote his biggest supporter in the company was Vince Russo as there were those who thought in the WWF, his height would be an issue, especially since he doesn't sell well. And his gimmick is almost being a bully, tough guy. Do you remember that being the case? And do you think Taz's run in the company may have been different had Russo still been at the helm? Well, Russo definitely was his biggest supporter and it was Vince who had really made the move to bring him in. But I also think that Jim Ross was a big supporter of Taz's as well. He liked his amateur background and felt that, uh, Taz would be a benefit for us. So let's, let's bring him in and let's do something with him. We signed him. We've got him. Now we got to do something with him. Got to make it work. Um, what was your thoughts on Taz coming in? Did you feel like Taz was long for this world? I don't think anybody would have predicted that Taz's entering career would be cut so short and he would really go on to make a bigger name for himself, at least in the WWE as a commentator. I thought Taz had value. I thought that Taz had a unique look. His promos were good. And regardless of how tall he was, he, he could back it up in the ring. He was a tough little bulldog and the people liked him. You know, they, they, they liked him from ECW and they liked him when he came in for us. So he had, he had it, he had personality. He had something that made people forget about the fact that he was not as tall as the rest of the guys. And you believed in what he was doing because he believed in what he was doing. So I thought that, you know, why not? Why can't you do something with him? Um, let's, let's talk about, uh, the company at the time, because there's a lot going on here and the company brings in $76.2 million between May 1st and August 1st, which means revenue is still markedly on the rise and they're on track for, unless things went South, another $250 million fiscal year. Is this kind of the best business has been since you've been with the company in 99? Yes. I mean, as far as, as far as exploding and those high dollar amounts. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely great. And I was there in, in 87, 88. It was great during that time, but the dollar amounts were just so much more in 1999. I mean, everything, everything we were touching was turning to gold. Do you remember the uh, MSNBC special heroes and legends? They did a show on Vince McMahon. Do you remember that? I I remember it vaguely, uh, not, not in a whole lot of detail, but I do remember it. Any, anything you want to tell us about what Vince thought about that? I don't think Vince ever likes anything that anybody does on him. I, I think that there is a part of him that views himself in one way and he's actually very you know, I know everybody's going to go all bullshit, but he actually is kind of shy and, and fairly humble in that he doesn't like, he doesn't like to be the center of attention and he well, doesn't like that. He doesn't like other people's interpretation of him in his office right now. He had, well, a few years ago, he had a framed magazine cover of himself on the cover of cigar aficionado magazine. And it was framed when he was on the cover of, uh, 
muscle and fitness. So I hear you, but at the same time, he's got framed pictures of himself in his office. He doesn't decorate his office. Right. And I, <laughs> again, I it's say true. that to, to yes, he, he, God, look at my guns. Good God. <laughs> I'm massive. Yes. There is that part of him. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm saying that there is a part of him that Wants to be seen the way he wants. Let me put it this way. He likes to be seen the way he sees himself versus how other people see him. Because most people see him completely differently than how he sees himself. All right. We're on our way here to No Mercy 1999. Now, let's get started running through the matches. Uh, in the first match, Godfather comes out to a big pop until the crowd realizes there's no hose with him. And he starts to get booed. So he calls him out. Um we haven't spent a lot of time on the Godfather here. Any fun hoe stories you can share with us? Not on air. The hell I'm married. I've got kids. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not asking. Oh, for dirt. oh, oh, um, <laughs> you know, there, there was Omaha is going to hate me right now. The, the term Omaha's comes from the worst hose that we ever got in the world were from Omaha. What, they just what, what were, makes a were not that hoe, pretty. What makes a good hoe and a bad hoe? Like what's, I don't know. Like I know how to pick melons at the store. I don't know how to pick hoes. So you know how to pick hoes. It's just, Hey, Hey, babe. Uh, don't tell me. Don't, don't sit here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I only pick melons at the store. I know how to do that. When it comes to hoes, I'm just, I'm just a little inexperienced. I'm a on novice. That, Bruce. Could you help me with that? <laughs> how would you pick a hoe? What the, what the, uh, I don't know, Conrad, if you were going to pick a hoe, hypothetically speaking, let's flip, let's just flip the script here a little bit. If you were going to pick a hoe, what would you look for in a hoe? Color hair. Color hair. I was thinking of, I was talking about handles. You know, I would want something that had a rubber grip, you know, cause if I'm not wearing gloves. Yeah, because uh, the, the wooden handles, sometimes you get splinters and everything right, right, from all right. that hoeing. Right. Yeah. If I'm going to be doing a significant amount of hoeing, I'd like to have a rubber grip. That's all I'm saying. I'm sure you would. I, I would I would definitely suggest rubber um, in dealing with hoes. So chat me up. Uh, any good uh, hoe stories? Did, did the hoes ever uh, get out of hand backstage? Did they fangirl out? Because wrestling's this weird world where you're supposed to go shake everyone's hand. And, uh, you can't sit in the wrong seat on an airplane or you're in trouble. I mean, there's all this stuff going on. So when these hoes are introduced to this weird, like subculture, how did they assimilate? The hoes were brought in usually later on in the day, right before we opened the doors so that they could practice getting into the ring with high heels. And they had a room to themselves. Um, that was the hoe room. And is that what it always was called? Had, the they always room? had an escort. Wait, they were, they were escorts. No, they had an escort. They usually had, uh, a bodyguard or someone that came with them. They were kind of segregated from the rest of the talent. There were always, you know, a hoe or two that would wander off and try to intersperse into the rest of the herd. Um, you said they had an escort, a bodyguard. Is that the shoot pimp or did you guys go to like hose R us and they just came with a supervisor? I went to Hose R Us and the supervisors would always usually come out with them to make sure that they were safe and make sure they were getting paid. Real conversation here. How are the hose 
found? Does somebody call ahead and just call around to strip clubs? Are they opening up the yellow pages to the escort section? Where does one I had a very good uh, directory of gentlemen's club establishments throughout the United States of America and Canada. And I had a pretty good relationship with most of the general managers and uh, a lot of the uh, guys that book uh, strippers for various clubs. So whenever we would need uh, hoes in certain areas, I would call them and say, hey, I'm looking for X number of girls to be on television at such and such a date. Here's what it pays. And that's it. Did any of the women ever have ambition of making this more than a one-off? Did they try to sell you on their wrestling ability or their promo skills or that they could, they had a special talent? No, no. When we were looking for someone to speak or have a, or take a bump or anything like that, I was always import the, the hose. I'd find a working hose somewhere. Well, but did any of these, uh, garden variety hose have ambitions to be working hose? No, not that, not that I can ever remember. I, I, no, no, most of, most of them were there to get their hundred bucks and get out. Well, those are good hoes. That's Um, it. Which gimmick do you think that, uh, Charles liked the most Papa Shango comma Godfather. (laughs) I mean, Godfather is is the Godfather. Um, I, I, I think that he liked the Godfather most Godfather was the most fun. Um, as far as gimmicks, I always loved Papa Shango. I just, uh, I just loved the absurdity of Papa Shango and some of the things. And, and I remember I used to come up with just stupid shit to do with Papa Shango, like stand in the corner and put a hex on someone and have them take bumps without touching just hokey, horrible, horrible stuff. Um, but by far, I think Godfather was the most successful and the most fun. Uh, hypothetically speaking, did you ever roll a fatty with that pimp daddy? Yes. Okay, cool. Did uh, Godfather have the hookup? Did he have a special connection for some particularly Sean Waltman level good stuff? Yes. Okay. How over do you think Godfather was in 1999? I mean, he's got to be one of the most over characters in the entire company at this point, right? I mean, the crowd is just digging everything he does. Oh man, it, it was, you, you watch, you know, go back and I'll use the Kama Mustafa character as an example and a contrast and compare. And you go back and watch Charles's comma, and then you watch Charles's Godfather. He's having fun. He's, he's, um, enjoying everything that he's doing. He's fluid. It, it's, it's, a, that makes a big difference in a character. And I think that, uh, the Godfather character resonated with the crowd. They loved him. It was, you know, now it's time to have fun. So here comes, here comes the Godfather and his hose. So it was a blast, man. The thing that you forget with the Godfather character, Charles Wright is a badass and a big dude. He's, he's huge. He's about as he's, he's frigging wide. His shoulders, like, I don't think he can fit through a door going in straight. He's people forget. He's just such of a nice guy and he's always smiling and he's, he's a fun guy, but he's a legit. When they talk about tough guys in the wrestling business, he's one of them. I mean, he's a legit badass. 
<laughs> and I, it, it just clicked on me. I, I wrote that down when I was watching the show because when he takes a microphone and he does the thing about farm animals and I ain't got no farm animals, but I got my hose and you don't want none of my hose. So now I just got to kick your ass. There was that truth in that promo. Cause Charles could kick your ass then. And I'm pretty sure Charles could still kick your ass if he wanted to. Well, if you get out of line in a gentleman's club in Vegas, you may find out the hard way. Um, let's talk about his opponent here. He's taking on Midian. And Midian, of course, is the former uh, Godwin that we all remember there. Um, Phineas was his name as a Godwin. And he was the one, if you recall, who was in love with Sonny, um, et cetera, et cetera. Chat me up about Midian and the eye gimmick because Midian goes through a phase here. And there's a few different incarnations of Midian. There's naked Midian, which I'm sure we'll talk about another time. But then there's this kind of weird version where he's a part of the undertaker stable and he's got an eyeball as kind of his calling card. What's up with that? Cocaine's a hell of a drug. No, uh, bless his little heart. Uh, Midian tried Midian wanted so badly to do something and, and be a part of something. He and Undertaker hung out in real life and he wanted to be a part of the ministry. And they came up with this Midian character and Midian shaved his head and legitimately tattooed an eyeball on the back of his head so that he could say, he goes, I've got eyes in the back of my head. Um, okay. It just, there was always just something missing with, with Tex and wasn't a great worker. A wonderful human being. Great. He's a great chef. I can tell you that. Yeah. That's what I wanted to mention, you know, these days, and it feels like, you know, this happened a lot during this era. Dennis Knight is the real life Midian and he's, uh, he's only 48 years old and these days he's a chef. And I think a lot of people are probably a little shocked to hear that because that's not necessarily what you would imagine naked Midian or Phineas Godwin becoming, but Somewhere down in Florida, uh, he's a pretty big time chef these days, right? He he is, and he he's tried out for the Food Network, and they've had a couple different pilots with him and doing different things. But he is a legit badass chef, and he he found his calling in the kitchen. That's for damn sure. But um, at this point in the ring, he was no Luthez. Let's just go there. Speaking of people who are doing damage in kitchens. Uh, Viscera is here and he's got the blue contacts in, of course, this is the former Mabel and the world's largest jacket. Hypothetically speaking, where do you think that the company found Viscera's jacket here? Uh, Omar's, uh, tent makers, oh, Omar's tent and canvas. Yes. Um, quite a look for Viscera and the comment about animals, I guess we should mention here is, um, Viscera doesn't has has turned down Godfather's uh, offer for hose in exchange for let's just forget the match and you just take one of my girls. He didn't want to do that on the way here to this pay per view. And Midian points out that uh, he prefers animals and he likes them dead. Whose idea was it to kind of insinuate or just flat out say that Midian was really a favor of fornicating with dead animals? 
I have absolutely no idea. Uh, that God, just we made some horrible choices back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is just everything about this match could not happen in 2017. You couldn't Nothing. have a guy out there saying that he wants to have sex with dead animals. You couldn't have a character openly talking about smoking weed, presenting himself as a pimp, calling women hoes. Like none of this could happen. And it's funny. Just a few minutes ago, you said when he came out, the crowd was like, oh, yay, it's time for some fun. Let's shit on women and celebrate drug culture and cheer on a pimp and prostitution. And it's such a weird world at the time compared to now, just, you know, a handful of years later, I guess. Ah, yes. Um, I got to tell you, you know, last week I texted you and was telling you how much I enjoyed watching the pay-per-view that we covered last week. And this week (laughs) I texted you out of frustration, uh, after the first 30 minutes going, um, different time boy and and it's amazing this is what 18 years ago well and in the show you're talking about you know bad blood was october 97 this is october 99 so in 24 months how different is the company right big time big time and i just i there's parts of it where i just kind of hung my head and went good god what the hell was anybody thinking I think a lot of people thought heading into this match that it would be Godfather Viscera because Viscera left Godfather laying on SmackDown, but this winds up being a change for the better, I guess, uh, because we get Midian instead in the ring. Godfather throws a body block to uh, the corner and, uh, does the hoe train. That's the name of the move. And then finishes with a schoolboy. It gets uh, a quarter star in the observer. And then after the match, Referee Tim White gets mauled by the hose. Uh, did Tim White enjoy a good hoe? Well, I think he enjoyed getting mauled by the hose. He's a good dancer too. Uh, Who wouldn't want to get mauled by a bunch of hoes? Pat Patterson. You never know. Uh, who did you prefer of all the different incarnations that, that we would see Midian in regular Midian, naked Midian, Phineas Godwin, Southern justice. Uh, what's the best incarnation for him? I guess Sh- Sh- Shanghai Pierce Phineas. There you go. Uh, we haven't talked a whole lot about Viscera here on the show. Of course, he's the former Mabel. He's coming in as part of a tag team men on a mission. Of course, they win the world tag team titles. He eventually turned teal wins the king of the ring tournament. In 95 even headlines a SummerSlam against diesel for the world title. He's back here in the company in the summer of 98. How does, uh, him coming back into the company come about, uh, just a big bastard. You know, I think that, that Mabel viscera, big daddy V, I just called him Nelson, uh, gets a bad rap. Sometimes I think that for a big man, that Nelson was a hell of a worker. He could move, he could do stuff. And I, I think that he was underrated for whatever reason because his stuff was convincing. He could actually cut a decent promo and it, man, it was real. When he landed on you, it looked like it killed you. Sometimes it did, but, um, I thought that he was a 
pretty damn good talent. And going back and watching some of his older stuff, I look at it and go, damn, um, man, Nelson wasn't bad. He really wasn't. And with the tag team package men on a mission with, with Bobby, you know, everybody thought, well, Bobby can go in and do all the work because he was the smaller of the two. But later on in many later years, when we had Mabel as a single competitor, you know, shoot, I thought that, uh, Mabel did a pretty damn good job in the roles in which he was in. Of course, uh, Nelson has left us now. He passed away in 2014. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Any fun memories you can, st- you can share with him. How was he to travel with any ribs, anything lighthearted we could share about Mabel. You know, Mabel came to us from uh, courtesy of Jerry Lawler. And I even remember the first place that Lawler told us about, uh, these guys in Memphis, Tennessee. And he said, you've got to see this tag team. This is the one guy is bigger than a door. Like what? And so we brought them, we brought them into TV and we were still somewhere up in the Northeast and the son of a bitch was bigger than the door. Couldn't fit through the door in the dressing room. Uh, that being Mabel, but, um, he just was a a good guy. I I don't even know why I'm telling this story, but I'll never forget. Somehow we got on the subject of colonics and Mabel talked about getting a colonic and the fact that when they did this colonic and he held out his hands about. I don't know, probably about three feet wide. He says, man, he says, they, they did it. And he goes and a piece of steak that had been in me for like five years came out and it was this long we're in on, my head. I'm just sitting we're on, there thinking we're on a going, podcast. We can't see your hands. I said about three feet long. Okay. But you just keep making hand gestures. I know. Well, I'm doing that for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you understand. I got it All right, about this long. I got it. Um, about three feet long folks and skinny. And I just remember just laughing on Nelson out of curiosity. How do you know that that is a steak from five years ago? <laughs> and what the hell are you doing? Looking at shit and measuring shit that came out of your ass that I, that just was funny to me, but he was, he was, uh, extolling the virtues of colonics. Uh, next up, we see a video package from SmackDown. Of course, this shows Triple H with the nasty wound on his face. Eventually, he's saying, I'm going to give up the world title. It, do- it doesn't mean more to me than my life. Um, and, of course, China uh, is involved here. And China and Triple H say something like, I hope you're happy, Steve. And when Austin looks at China, Triple H attacks him, takes the wound off the face, and we're... Uh, shown that, Hey, he really is the cerebral assassin. This was just makeup. They didn't show us the, uh, the heat interview. So back then, of course, prior to the pay-per-view, you would get Sunday night heat and they would do a live uh, version of the show from the arena where the pay-per-view was taking place. So Michael Cole catches him out back right before the show and interviews triple H and, uh, Today, Triple H says the snake tried to bite him and he ripped its head off and threw it in the trash. And he's going to do the same thing to Austin tonight. Um, then we get a promo from ivory. I want to talk a little bit more uh, about ivory here because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about her on the podcast. 
Uh, Ivory is uh, one of the more underrated female wrestlers at the time. Wouldn't you agree, Bruce? Yeah, Ivory was great. I think that a lot of people discounted her because of her association for a short time with the Glow Girls, but Ivory was a hell of a talent. Of course, um, Lisa Moretti is the real life Ivory, and uh, she had been around the business for what feels like forever. Uh, I think she debuts in like 86. She goes until 2006, but she comes into the company here in uh, 1999. How does she go about becoming signed with the company? Do you recall? I remember seeing her in California and she was in between. She was doing independence and she was working out there. She looked great. We were just looking for new female talent and we were in a process of bringing in a lot more females to go through the developmental process. And here was someone who had experience. Uh, we brought her in, she was ready to go. So man, she was on the roster. So she debuts on TV, um, as one of the hoes for Godfather in like January of 99 by February, she is in storyline, the love interest of Mark Henry. Time passes. I'm sure we'll cover this more uh, in, in greater detail another time. Now she's the women's champion, and she's going to be taking on, uh, interestingly enough, Fabulous Mula, who here is 72 years old. And when Mula and May are making their entrances, this is an opportunity of a lifetime for Jerry Lawler to crack all kinds of jokes here. Uh, of course, Ivory's out next as the champion. And to say Ivory is in phenomenal shape here is an understatement. I mean, she looks like a fitness model. Um, this may be more underrated than it should have been at the time, because at the time, you know, you've got all of the different attitude era divas and it's almost, you know, the bikini era of sorts where it's how little can we get the girls to wrestle in ivory has to do a little bit of that, but she's probably a more legitimate in-ring performer than most. And looked absolutely, she looked like an athlete. She Big time. was an athlete and she looked absolutely fabulous as did the fabulous Mula. Well, so here's where we're going with this. Mula becomes the oldest recorded champion in WWF history, 72 years old, when she pins Ivory in about three minutes. She first won a world title in 1956. Um, no other wrestler on the show here was even born in 1956, but, uh, she actually won her first belt there. There's no heat for the match. According to Meltzer and Meltzer wrote, of course, the wrestling was unbelievably bad, but there was something about the atmosphere that made the match palatable. Maybe it was the amazement and seeing 76 year old may young take bump after bump. How she hasn't broken in two is beyond anyone's comprehension, but I guess it just goes to show she's as tough as her reputation. Ivory did a splash spot where she missed to the left and Mula never moved. That was the silliest looking spot on pay-per-view this year. Mula later did a splash off the bottom rope and was Ivory, but she didn't move fast enough and got her anyway. May Young took bumps off the apron from a clothesline and a second time from a drop kick. Uh, Mula was in slow motion, but her forearm blows look more real than the punches thrown by half of the young wrestlers in the business today. Ivory tried a tope on Mula seemingly to get caught diving through and fell straight down and barely grazed her. The finish saw Ivory hit young with the title belt and she took yet another bump off the apron. And this gave Mula a chance to deliver the slowest schoolgirl in history for the pin negative one star. 
this uh, feels like something everybody would have known was a bad idea. One of the worst matches in WWE pay-per-view history here. But a credit to Moolah because my takeaway was, especially for 72, she was up and down when she was bumping a lot faster than I imagined that she would have been. And why would it be a bad idea? Um, why? Listen to you. Why? No, I, the crowd was up for it. The crowd seemed to enjoy it. It was positively, absolutely god awful. Um, but the nostalgia side of it for Moolah to wrestle uh, in her 40th or 50th year uh, in the ring and to be champion again, it was the least that we could do for everything that uh, the contributions that Lily and Ellison had made to the wrestling business. And it was just kind of a fun haha spot, but Oh my God, you talk about the bumps that may took and what people forget on the bumps that may took, she's taking bumps off the apron to the floor in high heels, folks. She's taking bumps at 76 years old or however old she is in high heels. And she's getting up and it was, if you know that the, the relationship between, uh, Mula and may and Mula was the, the dominant one in that relationship. And Johnny may was just really the tough is nails older one, but Mula always was like, she was taking care of Johnny may and at the end of the, at the end of the thing, uh, Johnny may trying to hold up the belt, Mula grabbing the belt away from Johnny may. There's just little nuances that I found extremely funny, especially considering their relationship and they'd been friends and known each other for so long. Um, they were just like an old, old married couple. They were hilarious, but my God, the punishment that they took in this match, a lot of these kids today couldn't take. It's worth mentioning that her uh, return to the ring here in 99 caused Mula to start experiencing dizziness and uh, her doctor had her wear a heart monitor and eventually she had to be admitted to the hospital where they found uh, some clogged arteries and she had viral pneumonia where she wound up being in intensive care for 24 days uh, of which she was unconscious 15 of those. So she's uh, didn't have the best run here in 99 is with health. After leaving the hospital, she, um, slipped and wound up cracking a couple of vertebrae too. So she has back surgery in December. So she did make a return here, but at a great cost to her health, maybe not the best idea. You know, it'd be weird to, uh, not talk about fabulous Mula and her a relationship with Vince. I don't know when we'll have an opportunity to do it here. This feels like as good as any chat me up about what Moolah's relationship was like with the company, because she's not a person without controversy. Well, Moolah was the, no, she, well, she wasn't the original, but she, she learned from her promoter. Um, oh my God, the buddy Lee, uh, in Tennessee, from years and years ago and, and buddy Lee booked all of the women wrestlers and had them, he got a percentage of everything that they did. And later on, Mula adopted that same thing where she would train the, train the women. And then she would book the women. She got a percentage of everybody that she booked out. 
So Mula and Vince McMahon Sr. had been friends for many, many years. Mula had always been able to work New York once they allowed women to wrestle in New York. And she always supplied the women wrestlers to the majority of the promotions across the United States. And Vince always held Mula in very high esteem. And she always provided the the girls. If you were a female wrestler, chances are you worked for Mula or you worked independent. You didn't get a whole lot of bookings because Mula in the way that the promotions were back in the old days was, you know, it was a very tight industry and you used who you were supposed to use. So Mula trained a lot of girls and, Everybody, if you went through Moolah school, she got a percentage of your earnings from that point going forward in the wrestling business. She got your book. She got her PC. I need my PC, honey. So she was a, uh, she was a ruthless business person and she was tough as nails. And I, you go back to Madison square garden and Vince with Wendy Richter. When Wendy didn't want to drop the women's championship, he put Moolah in there to to beat her. And that was the original screw job, uh, to make sure Lisa. it happened because he felt like Mula knew how to handle herself and she could take care of Wendy. If Wendy got out of line. Yeah. And, and Mula had no problem with that whatsoever. So she was tough as nails and she got in. And wh- when you talk about, you know, was this a great idea? Most of this was always Mula and may they wanted to do this. They would not have been happy just sitting on the sidelines. They, they wanted to work. They wanted to take bumps. They wanted to be active in doing something. So if she got hurt doing it, well, by God, at least she got hurt doing something that she loved and she did it all the way to the end. And that is the way she lived life on her terms. And those were her terms. There's lots of, uh, negativity surrounding fabulous Mula. There's rumors out there that she would, uh, set the female wrestlers up to be exploited sexually, including Luna Vachon claiming that when she was 16 years old and training at Luna's camp, uh, at, at Mula's camp, Mula sent her out of state to be photographed by another man. Of course you can imagine stuff happens. Um, but uh, there's, there's a big talk that she didn't just take her part of the booking fee that she paid the girls just enough to survive and made her, made them totally dependent on her. They would have to live on her property. She would handle their training, their food. And allegedly there was a lot of substance abuse stuff going on piled on with sexual abuse. She's just not this rosy figure that the WWE may have wanted her to be once upon a time or positioned her to be once upon a time. And I think that's a lot of the reason that this most recent tournament that we saw with the WWE this past year was called the May Young tournament rather than the fabulous Mula. Would you agree with that, Bruce? I really don't know. And, you know, you hear all that and a lot of it, you know, some of it could be true to me. A lot of it is rumor and innuendo because I never spoke to anybody that came up and ever made any of those allegations to me personally and my dealings with Mula going back good God, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, we're always very positive. Yes. She did have a reputation for taking her money and getting her cut. Um, but then you, you hear the other side of it and the girls that did live with her saying, you know, Hey, she broke me into the business. She gives me a place to live. She feeds me. 
know, there's two sides to every story. And the Lillian Ellison that I knew was an extremely sweet woman, a sharp businesswoman, and she fought for what she believed in. And she was a tough old broad that was able to last in a man's business for all those years. So especially when you think about starting in the 1950s and the way that the wrestling business was and being dominated, it's male-dominated business. Still to this day it is. But she survived. She not only survived, she thrived. She did what she had to do. I don't know if any of those things are true. I never witnessed them. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of that until many, many years later, uh, after the fact, after she was gone and things of that nature. Um, and as many, as many stories as you can find negative, you can find positive about her as well. And I choose to remember those. The, um, a lot of the rumor and innuendo about why these stories didn't come out sooner was Mula had the year of everyone in the business who mattered. So if you went against Mula, she could essentially blackball you because Vince and other promoters would go to Mula whenever they wanted to book women. And if you wanted to be a women's professional wrestler, you pretty much had to go through Mula. So rather than just taking her 25% booking fee, she would also charge them for rent, travel, food, etc. So the net was tiny. But if you really wanted to be in the business, that's kind of what you had to put up with. And, and the craziest accusation uh, that was thrown out there was from Sweet Georgia Brown, where her testimony was that she was raped, given drugs, and made an addict in an attempt by Mula and her husband uh, to control her. And you hear all this kind of sorted details that you can go research on your own because most of this didn't happen in the WWF. Um, but it is something that is, if we didn't bring it up here, uh, you know, I don't know when we'll talk about it again. Um, Mula wins the belt here and then drops it back to ivory eight days later. Do you remember there being any sort of buzz with Vince or Vince ever hearing any of these stories one way or another about some of the seedy behavior that was rumored to surround Mula's business practices? Not that he discussed with me. The only thing that we ever discussed was widely known <coughs> in the business was, you know, her PC. And that was, that was actually a running joke in the business, you know, for years and years that even long after, and you know, let's keep in mind too, the Moolah wasn't the only one that got her PC. There were a lot of, you know, wrestlers, Ganya, men. Ganya asked for it. I mean, yeah, there, there were a lot of people that if they trained you, they wanted their PC. Um, it just was Lillian probably continued the practice, uh, much longer because of the specialized female wrestlers. There weren't a lot of them. And in 1987, um, you know, Vince, Vince told her, he says, Hey, I'm, I'm bringing in Sherry Martell. We started bringing in other female wrestlers, the jumping bomb angels that, that were not a part of Moolah's camp. And he says, you know, I'm bringing in other girls and I'll, I'll be happy to use your girls as well, but whatever arrangement that they have with you, that's between you and them. And we didn't, we didn't pay Moolah first. We paid the girls first. It's worth mentioning that, uh, Moolah and May young actually lived together, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, a small professional wrestler named Katie glass also lived with Mula for over 40 years. 
uh, and another lady wrestler, Donna Christianello, lived with Mula on and off for 40 years. Um, you can draw your own conclusions. Uh, Mula passed away in 2007 at the age of 84. Uh, and unfortunately, Mae Young passed away in January of 2010 at the age of 90. Uh, most famously, uh, May went through the table uh, off the top from Bubba Ray Dudley. Are we ever going to see anybody like Moolah and May Young in the business ever again? Dude, let me tell you about it. when uh, May went, they went off the stage with the Dudleys through a table, and Vince was adamant he wanted to see them do it ahead of time. And we had a big giant crash pad out there for, um, May to go through. And he wanted Bubba and he, he was in Bubba's face and saying, so help me God. If anything happens to one of these ladies, I'm holding you personally responsible and they're better not, you know, you better take care of them. Unlike you've ever taken care of anybody in your life. So we get everything set up and it's, uh, me and Bubba and may standing up on the stage and I'm trying to get the cameras and get everybody ready so that Vince can see this thing before we do it. And while we're standing there talking, I'm explaining to May. I said, okay, may we get up here. I said, he's going to get you up in the power bomb. He'll come off. He's got you. I said, but Vince wants to see you take this bump before we obviously do it live tonight. All right, honey. And she jumps off the stage and takes a bump, just takes a, takes her own bump off the stage by herself without no cameras ready, no nothing. And Bubba and I are just looking at each other and he's Bubba looks at me and goes, I think she'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, may we got to do it again. Vince wants to see you do it with Bubba. So, um, they were fearless. They, they were absolutely fearless and tough as nails all the way to the end. Next up, we see a video from heat, uh, where Vince tells triple H that the match with Austin is going to be no hold barred. So that's the last minute change here to the card. Uh, and then we see the new age outlaws come into the ring and during their entrance, Jr. says they may be the best tag team in WWF history. At this point, Bruce, they've got to be the most over in history, right? I mean, the crowd is white hot for the outlaws. Wouldn't you agree? The outlaws were a great tag team. I think that there are a lot of great tag teams in the history of the WWF, uh, but road dog and, uh, Jesse James, holy shit. They were excellent, man. And at this time they were red hot as an act as well. But, uh, I think you can go back and look at the heart foundation and a lot of other tag teams that are going to be in that argument. Next up, the Hollies come out. Crash, of course, is carrying a scale. They're both doing the super heavyweight gimmick at this time, where they're claiming to be over 400 pounds. And we see a highlight package from the previous SmackDown, where it showed the Hollies interfere and cost the Outlaws the tag titles against Mankind and Rock. Uh, so the Outlaws are no longer the champs here. Mankind and Rock are. Uh, Bob and Crash wind up beating the New Age Outlaws by DQ. When Bob got a chair and threw it into the ring, but Billy grabbed it and gave crash the famouser on the chair. The ref sees this and DQs the outlaws. And of course, uh, after the match, uh, road dog looks like he's doing it doggy style to Bob Holly and gives the pump handle slam to crash, uh, on top of the chair. They go, uh, two star, two and three quarter stars. What'd you think of the match here, Bruce? I thought it was horrible. Um, no, it was okay. 
It just wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything that felt like a throw was over the top. I felt like the audience was sitting on their hands for uh, the majority of the match. The funniest part of the whole thing was when Jr. asked King what shiznit is. Jr. What shiznit? I don't know, King. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that in about seven days or so. Tell you what shiznit is, but. And that's another example of, of those guys just kind of sliding things in, uh, wherever they could, you know, a little shiznit here and there, uh, the match was okay, but it wasn't anything to write home about. It it was, they were going, they just kind of got through the damn match. There wasn't a big, there wasn't a big story to it. And I felt like so much of this night was let's get through this night and, you know, tomorrow we'll start rebuilding. It's crazy to think that just, uh, about four years after this crash, Holly would pass away. Uh, we haven't talked much about crash, but he won the lightweight title, the European title, the tag titles, uh, and he's famous for the scale gimmick here, a pretty interesting character. Uh, it's a shame we lost him as early as we did. Any good crash Holly stories you can share with us. Crash came to us from Roland Alexander. And you may remember Roland Alexander from the documentary beyond the mat. Uh, out in San Francisco, uh, I saw a crash. Uh, his name was Mike Lockwood and I saw him out in California along with a guy by the name of Vic Grimes. Wow. There's, brought, a, there's a name we haven't talked about much on the yeah. show. And we, we brought them in to the developmental and it was tough to try and figure out, man, what he was a leprechaun. He, he worked as a leprechaun and we didn't want a leprechaun because we didn't have fit Finley yet. So we had no need for a leprechaun at that point. And Vince thought he was, did he look like a cartoon character? And then the, he's standing there and he's standing next to Bob Holly. And I don't know if it was Vince Russo or Vince McMahon that was like, oh my God, they could be brothers. And then we said, well, shit, what if they were cousins? And the Hollies were born and it wasn't like Bob, you know, um, they, we started them working against each other. The they were basically fighting cousins and it worked and, and he, they looked identical, but, uh, crash looked like a friggin' cartoon character, the way that he would walk to the ring and his mannerisms in the ring and people bought it. And he presented himself as a super heavyweight, tried to work like a super heavyweight. And I'll be damned a little, some bitch didn't get over. Uh, any interesting stories about Bob Holly working with crash that you can share with us? Yeah, they hated each other. So their, their, <laughs> their matches were <laughs> stiff as shit. I don't think Bob liked the idea of somebody else coming in and, and, you know, Piggybacking on his name. Yeah. So, you know, Bob wasn't really fond of it. And then the more that the crash, their matches were great because they were, they were literally beating the shit out of each other and it helped crash get over. So it was, uh, it was good. I, I, I told the story this past weekend to somebody who was asking me about what are some of the ideas that guys come up with that you just shake your head at. And, I'll never forget Bob Holly. The guys were asking talent for ideas. If you have any ideas, you know, write them down and, and tell us, let us know what idea that you may have. And 
Bob's idea was, hey, I got an idea. How about you give me the belt? <laughs> oh, my God. That's so great. <laughs> and the follow-up question was, okay, then what? Then I beat everybody. Okay, thanks. We'll put that one in the bank. Appreciate that. I love Bob Holly. <laughs> That's so great. I love it. Uh, Matt, give me the bell. <laughs> um, that's just good stuff, man. Then we go to uh, the good housekeeping match. We've covered this a lot. It's Jeff Jarrett defending the Intercontinental title against China. You can hear all about this in our Jeff Jarrett episode, uh, but there's a long video package here leading to the match, and we're shown. How many times Jeff Jarrett put women in the figure four, which just tickles me. We also cover the rumor and innuendo about Jeff Jarrett holding up Vince McMahon for money here on this match. Uh, let's kind of give you the cliff notes version now in case you missed that episode. His contract expired the night before. He's still the intercontinental title. Uh, the contract just did not get signed. Now he wants to leave, but he's owed money from house shows he's worked, from pay-per-views he's worked, from royalties that he was due to receive. And he's concerned that if he leaves and goes down to WCW, he may still, you know, have a little bit of trouble collecting. So he just asks that he's paid before he leaves. So the rumor that he's holding Vince up for money is not technically true, but not technically false either. He's holding him up for money. He's already owed. And, uh, Vince doesn't have a problem with it. Doesn't blow a gasket with Jeff about it. Jeff shakes everyone's hand on the way out. It's not one of those. I got out of the ring and ran straight to the car and left the building. Do I have that right, Bruce? That's correct. Uh, it's Jeff's last match ever in the WWF. And, uh, I would say never say never in the WWF, but it certainly looks that like he's never coming back. Uh, he loses the China that uh, loses the title to China here. Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars and Jeff is on nitro the very next night. Anything you want to add to this, Bruce, that we may have missed? No, I, I watched this man. I actually watched it again and oof. I, I, I don't know what to say. I, you know, I, I find it funny sometimes when you just talked about the star that Meltzer gave it three and whatever, you know, he gives this match three and something, but gives another classic, uh, Oh, that's only a quarter of a star. Um, as Clint for mercy, I thought it was, but anyway, um, uh, I thought that it was solid. Good God. Um, it was not a bad match. It was just not a bad match. I, I just had to chuckle at the finish Cause I had actually forgotten the finish where, you know, Jeff beat her with the belt, hitting her with the belt. And then they reversed the decision because the intercontinental championship is not a household item. Isn't that hilarious? Therefore you cannot win. But, but, a, but a hang guitar on, is. hang on, hang on. I tell you what we're going to do is China. What, what the hell did China hit him with? A guitar. Yes. Because everybody has an acoustic guitar in their house. I, I'm like, uh, what? Yeah. Uh, any creative differences, um, that you guys had to work out about the match or is Jeff willing to do whatever? 
Jeff was willing to do whatever. He he went out there and did everything that was asked of him to do, and I thought that he did a good job with it. He went out and, and put Joni over, and I thought that they had a hell of a match. Could have gone out and done a five-minute match and got the hell out of there and not done all the spots that they did, and, and I thought that he did a great job and did his job. The thing that uh, made me laugh the most about watching this that I kind of forgot is when Jeff comes out, uh, he of course brings out Miss Kitty with him, but he's bringing out the kitchen sink and there's lots of weapons out there, but this, as we talked about in a WrestleMania 13 episode, it's hilarious because this is a Vinceism. He wants the kitchen sink, right? Because everybody talks about, oh my God, all right. I use everything but the kitchen sink and going back. I do remember, um, it was what I wanted for the finish was the kitchen sink to be the finish. Oh my God. She's, she's now used there. She used the kitchen sink to defeat Jeff. You know, I mean, I just thought that was a little more poetic justice to actually use the kitchen sink to win the damn match. Um, what did the guys on the roster think of China winning the intercontinental title? It feels like a guy like Bob Holly may have taken great issue with this. You know, when you're saying that he's pitching, let me win the belt and beat everybody. And now a woman is winning the intercontinental title instead. Well, in fairness to Bob at the time, that pitch came many years later. It's just always one of my favorite Bob Holly stories. Everybody liked China for the most part. I don't think that people saw it as, oh my God, you know, it's a woman getting the championship. They saw it as the story that it was. And she was just another character on the show. Um, she eventually loses the title a few months later to Chris Jericho. Uh, and of course of everyone in the match, the only person in the hall of fame is Teddy long. Holla holla. Yeah. I don't know why that amuses me, uh, but it does next up. We go to a video package showing the history between the rock and the British bulldog. The rock comes to the ring, but he doesn't bring his tag team title here. Uh, and he pins the British bulldog in seven minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer wrote rock phone, the match in match, even with rock had no heat until the trademark moves at the finish bulldog took virtually all the bumps, but didn't look good. He had trouble with his power slam with rock, getting his legs and the ropes to break the pin finish saw clean as a sheet with the rock bottom and people's elbow. I don't know what clean as a sheet is, but those sheets over at brooklinen.com are pretty badass. Uh, Meltzer gave it one star. What'd you think of uh, rock and bulldog here? This feels like something rock would not have been tickled with and a bit of a throwaway spot for him. Well, rock was put in the position to try and do something with, with bulldog and bulldog was not the bulldog of yesteryear at this point in his career. And I think it, it, at this point we had the match booked, we'd already gotten there and I don't think anybody was really happy with, with bulldog. And, and it wasn't too long after this, that, that he would have been on his way. Um, it sucked. Yeah, it just sucked. It was, it was off other than rocks entrance in the finish. The crowd was dead. They did not care at all. Uh, Davy boy came out to little or no reaction and the match was sloppy. And for once I, I agree with Meltzer. Yeah. They, they were just kind of going through the motions. 
Um, not the best match here. We've talked about the uh, Bulldogs return here on the Unforgiven show, and he wasn't around much longer after this match. What you know, we talked about at the time on that Unforgiven show that Stu calls and asks Vince to hire Bulldog, but he, he's not around much longer after this show. How does his relationship with the company end? He was. He was very dependent on drugs at the time. We, we had an issue where we, you know, had to send him to rehab and he was off. He just, he just was off. And I, I think it had a lot to do with, you know, the, the demons, if you will. And like I said, we just, we just did not have the bulldog of old that we thought we had. And it showed when he walked out, there was no, there was no pep in his step. His, his promos were never something that you could write home about anyway. And when we tried to do something, you try and do something with rock and it's not working, you know, you, you, if you can't do something with him, you can't do something with anybody. So we just kind of cut bait there and tried to get him some help and moved on. Are you uh, watching this show in gorilla with Vince at the time? Yes. I don't know if Vince was there or not, but I, I know I was and just thinking, God, get it over. Do you think this match is really kind of the, the last straw for bulldog in the company? Yes, I do. It was the idea of, Hey, maybe this isn't working out the way we want, but let's give him every opportunity. Let's put him in there with rock. And if this doesn't work, then we really don't have anything. It didn't work. So the decision was made to part ways. That is, that is exactly what happened because it was, if you can't make it work with rock, then it ain't going to work. What's that conversation sound like? Does bulldog get fired in person and who does it? Originally, uh, the, I believe that Jr released him, but I know before that Jr and I had to have the discussion with him about, uh, having to go to rehab and sending him to rehab. And that that's a difficult discussion. That's, that's a hard discussion to have with people because for the most part, when you're messed up on drugs, you don't want to admit it. You, you don't see it. You don't see yourself the way other people see you. Sure. And uh, bulldog felt that he was fine and that he could, he could function and he wasn't, and he couldn't function. So we, we wanted to do something to try and save his life. We, we felt that he was going down a road that he wouldn't be able to, get off of. So we made the decision to, to try and help him out and get him some help. I don't think that he shared that sentiment. What did rock say after the match? You know, best of my recollection, I don't know that, you know, necessarily I do remember, <laughs> you know, he wasn't happy with it because it just was, they just were off. They didn't mesh and you know, bulldog was heavy. Uh, when I'm, when I say heavy, he was heavy to lift and heavy, just on his feet. Um, rock wasn't happy with it. Rock was not happy with the match and, and not happy really doing it, which is why he wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible. You could tell, I mean, you could tell there just is a, there was a feeling in that match and you can watch him work where there's just a disappointment, almost a disgust in the match. Next up, we go to an interview uh, from Heat with uh, Jerry Lawler and Terry Runnels. They're talking about the tag team ladder match and how $100,000 would be hanging from above the ring. And, of course, uh, King gets her to climb higher and higher on the ladder. 
and Terry is saying something like, can't you see it, Jerry? This is what it'll be like. Can't you see it? And of course, Jerry, oh, I can see it. Uh, the winners get a hundred grand and her managerial services. And this was a best of five series between edge and Christian and the Hardy boys. This was the fifth and final match. Uh, and this was called the Terry invitational tournament. What was the abbreviation for this Bruce? TIT. Um, whose idea was TIT and how over was TIT amongst the boys? Uh, the original idea was Vince Russo's I'm sure, but, um, yeah, TIT kind of like TNA TIT. I like it. Um, this idea is a Russo idea. Is that fair to say? Yes. Um, we go to the entrances of edge and Christian and then the Hardys. Uh, the Hardys are accompanied by Gangrel here, uh, because, and that may sound confusing. They're trying to position themselves as sort of the new brood of sorts. They've, they've gotten Gangrel to switch from edge and Christian now over to the Hardys. And Jr. mentions on commentary that this is the first ever tag team ladder match in WWF history. And I think so many people associate these two tag teams and the Dudley boys with their phenomenal matches at the Royal rumble and SummerSlam and WrestleMania and just all over. But this is the first one and it's edge and Christian and the Hardys. Whose idea is this? Where does this come from? I believe, you know, the idea, I believe the idea for the whole thing was, was Russo's. And this is an example. Uh, I wrote this down in my notes. This is an example. Really what this was in so many ways, uh, was a match for the brass ring. And it's that elusive brass ring. Everybody talks about the guys. All you gotta do is reach up and grab that brass ring. Well, all four of these guys in this match, in my opinion, did just that. They were given a platform, uh, where a lot of people can see them on a pay-per-view. They were put in a position to go out and perform and they outperformed everybody else on the crowd, on the card, bigger pardon. And this to me was watching it. I just kept saying, Jesus, this was 18 years ago. And look at the crap that Jeff Hardy is putting his body through right now. Right. Uh, Matt looked like a little baby in the match. Um, God, they were so young. They were just children, but all four of those guys went out and performed to a level that people hadn't really seen before. And they were looking at both, uh, edge Christian and Matt and Jeff as, you know, Matt and Jeff, young kid tag team is going to be like the Hardy boy tag team, almost a cute and cuddly tag team. Like the rockers, all of a sudden you, you have to look at them in a different light because they're out there. They're busting their ass. They're taking insane punishment. They took their time. They sold. And that's something that you unfortunately don't see enough of today, especially with these table ladder and chair matches where you take these big bumps and then you get right up and go right into the next spot. Right here. They all four took their time. They there's their spots were logical. They made sense and they were able to go out and tell a story. And they had the crowd on the edge of their seats for all their false finishes all the way through the match. To me, it was, it was the best match that I've watched in the last four weeks by far. And you look back and it still holds up today, but I, can point to that match and say, Hey, that's where all four of those careers started to take off because you saw Jeff and Matt 
as more than just a Hardy Boy tag team. And you saw Edge and Christian as like, holy shit, they can go. Meltzer was pretty high on the match too, man. He wrote, Matt and Jeff Hardy won the ladder match over Edge and Christian in 16 and a half minutes. A must-see match because of any of these guys make it to the top, it'll be remembered as their first great match. Of course, they all did make it. Um, I think all of them at this point have been world champions. Uh, Edge is already in the Hall of Fame, and I'm sure everybody else here will be as well. As they're fighting for both ladders, one tips over with Christian falling off and crotching himself, Jeff catching his throat on the top rope. The other ladder tipped over similarly, and Edge caught his throat on the top and Matt landing on his stomach on the top rope and then going to the floor. They slowly start climbing again. One ladder goes down, and three of the four guys go down with it. Jeff had to bump from the falling ladder to the one left standing. He was the one guy left and grabbed the bag of money for the win and then celebrates backstage with new manager Terry Runnels. The fans gave the match a standing ovation, and Dave Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. It's going to be hard to top that one, but these guys would sure try for the next few years. It was just, you know, like it was a launching pad for all four of them, and I think that it it t- it tells you a lot to go back. And if you don't watch anything else on this show, go back and watch this one match. And understand 18 years ago and then think of everything that they've done since uh so proud of all of them they they stepped up they stepped beyond what anybody expected out of them uh i think i could point back and look at michael hayes and uh no 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 you know always said that these four guys had it from day one and was always a big proponent of them and I think you, you know, especially for him, can look back and go, "Told you so." Dude, dude, dude. Uh, during the match, Jr. mistakenly kept saying, "Show me the money, Matt Hardy," but it's actually Jeff on top of the ladder when he grabs the bag, and then Jeff takes this massive bump off the ladder. <sighs> Somebody's going to ask, "What was actually in the bag?" Uh, there was only uh, forty-two thousand uh, six hundred and nine dollars in the bag. That's all we could fit in that particular bag. So the rest of the money they got in the bag. Okay, what was really in the bag? Um, I think that there was uh, some Brooklyn and sheets. It was like a, um, I don't know. It's not a sheet, but almost like canvas. Okay, you know, you know what I'm saying, like just uh canvas to give it the full effect. So it was a canvas bag. And then it was like a sheet or something inside of it to give you that, that feeling of, of fullness. Uh, what was the reaction backstage when these guys were doing these hot spots? It's stuff that nobody had ever really seen before. Oh, standing ovation. Everybody was so happy. Well, first of all, everybody was so happy that all four guys were okay. Right. Um, but standing ovation because it was an awesome display of athleticism. They they were tremendous, uh, just off the chart. Did you have conversation with any of these guys after the match? Just hugged every one of them and thanked them and, and was so glad, <laughs> was so glad nobody was going to the hospital. They always scare me. The, these damn ladder matches and table matches. I, I hate them from the standpoint of what punishment the talent puts himself through. And all four of these guys I've, I've known since they first broke in, uh, young and especially in the WWF and had a hand in their careers. 
So I was just a proud papa. I was so glad that they went out and were able to steal a show on a major pay-per-view. Uh, what's Vince's um, reaction to this match? Is this something he wants more of, less of? He loved it, but there was always that concern at this at this time, you know, that maybe it was too much, and and we can't do too much of that. God damn, you know, yeah, only only takes so much of that kind of crap. So he he kind of went both ways on it. Um, that's kind of shocking because they booked it so often after this. After and that, they did. There were lots of ladder matches after this. Where do you rank this particular ladder match all time? After watching it, it it's going to be uh, in the top five for me because it was so logical. They took their time and they had a great story to tell. And any time that you can tell a story with a gimmick match, I, I think that uh, that adds just tons to it. Everybody can go out and use the gimmick and and have these great matches with by using the gimmick. But these guys were able to tell a story with the gimmick. Next up, we see a video from Heat. Uh, this is where mankind tries to offer, uh, the book, his new book, uh, under a stall to someone who he thinks is someone else. It turns out it's actually Val Venus. Val attacks mankind in the bathroom and then the rock comes out for an interview, but triple H attacks him with a sledgehammer. Uh, they wind up carrying the rock out on a stretcher and show him in pain, refusing to be taken to the hospital. And then we get our Val Venus mankind match. You actually kind of teased this a little bit last week, Bruce. These guys go nine and a half minutes before Val gets the pin. What'd you think of the match here, Bruce? Uh, you, you teased, you know, something that we want to talk about here. Um, mankind's obviously trying to plug the book here in the, the, the promo on heat. He's bringing it out here with him as well. What'd you think? Well, I thought that the match was okay. You know, the, the, what, what I was talking about last week was the interesting thing of what you didn't see and going back, uh, and watching the pay-per-view how the whole mankind and Val Venus issue started. Do you remember how it started? The issue started with them too? No. Well, uh, Mick. Walked into the, there was camera following Mick and Mick walks in to a bathroom and there was Val Venus got caught stuffing his shorts, shorts. Okay. And that was the entire premise to start the mankind Val Venus issue. Well, it was a really big deal for like two weeks and then Vince out of just, I don't know. It was, it was cute. It was something that everybody could relate to that. The porn star with the large unit was actually stuffing his stuff, you know, with the mankind sock and what have you. Um, but now all of a sudden Vince just completely dropped it. Didn't want to go back to the stuffing thing. And I don't know if it was because of Mick's book coming out and Mick doing so much uh, stuff, but this was one match. And then both guys went completely separate directions after this. And it was just completely dropped because for whatever reason, and I don't know if it was because the original idea was a Vince Russo idea and something that McMahon wasn't totally behind. But I always, I, I remember 
trying to suggest, well, what if we go back and I don't want to ever see that again. And thinking, well, we put all this television time into it. Let's go ahead and follow it up. Let's, let's have a uh, conclusion to it. And the conclusion to it was a testicular claw to beat the guy whose book you're trying to promote, who you don't want to have associated with a guy, a porn star that stuffs his trunks. So you take a sock with another guy's picture on it and grab him by the balls and beat him. This was just the kind of, you know, when people ask about why things drop, why things change, what was that supposed to be? This is an example of a holy what the hell. Because there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. And there were things that were started and then stopped. And then we had an ending that made no sense. And then Vince all of a sudden decided that he didn't like the porn star gimmick, former porn star gimmick anymore. We go to right to censor and next without any rhyme or reason or logical following. And it was just a frustration for me because I always, I, I did like the Bal Venus gimmick. We went it, we did invest in the damn thing. We did say he was a former porn star. So either go there and embrace it, and make something out of it, or tell me a story and get me out of it. And the story that we told to get out of it was all of a sudden he's now with right to censor and he cuts his hair and he is against everything that he was before, but no real story to get into it. And that was during a time that I just was really kind of frustrated with the, the, I don't want to say lack of storytelling, but the dropping of storytelling and just moving on that we were guilty of for just so many years of, of, uh, and this was an example of it that just went nowhere and died. Uh, mankind is under the weather here and with the mask, he's having a, a pretty hard time breathing. So he's, uh, moving kind of slower than normal, but still taking all of his trademark bumps and, uh, Lawler is trying to advance this whole uh, storyline, I guess, because when mankind starts to reach into Val's trunks, uh, they're teasing that he may be trying to pull out the bill, the big Balboski. I don't know why he would want to pull that out, but of course it's Rocco, which is Socko, except with an eyebrow. It's the rocks version of the sock puppet. Um, Val ends up getting the win by pinfall when mankind has him in the mandible claw. Uh, but then Val had mankind in the testicular claw at the same time. And they fall with Val landing on top of him for the pin. Uh, of course we got the money shot in there too. Um, how did, how did Mick enjoy working with Val? It seems like these guys would have got along pretty well. They did get along well. And for the most part, they had good matches and you talked about the money shot with Val Venus. I thought Val Venus had one of the best splashes in the business as well. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that either. But another part that I just kind of shook my head on in this was two matches ago, you had a good housekeeping match where they use tongs, right? Where China used tongs to grab Jeff Jarrett's testicles. And now here we're using a Rocco sock puppet to grab mankind's testicles and beat him. A lot of testicle grabbing going on here. There is. And and you had the, uh, the hose and the pimp and the porn star. And, um, you know, other guys are telling you to suck it. 
It's just, there's a lot going on here. There's the tent tournament. The, the book here doesn't get enough credit. Uh, have a nice day is Mick's first book. And they're plugging in a lot during the match. Of course, mankind's trying to get it on TV as much as he can as well. And Mick didn't use a ghostwriter. He wrote all the pages himself. It's a huge book, like 600 pages. It debuts at number three on the New York times bestseller list. And it ends up reaching number one in December of 1999. And this was really the first, uh, wrestler autobiography of the sort that came out. And we get a huge rash of books after because when everybody sees their success here, uh, there's a big interest in the book world. And of course, all the boys smell money. So they're in too. What did Vince think of this book? Vince liked Mick's book and the original idea behind the books was there was a woman by the name of Judith Reagan and she had a book company, Reagan books. She was interested in doing some work with the WWF and they had several talent that they wanted to come out with books. Obviously they wanted Austin. They wanted rock. They wanted undertaker and Mick got the nod <laughs> because he had an interesting story and they thought it would be would make for good reading and they didn't want to give them Austin right away. So they had a ghostwriter by the name of Lou Sahadi. You may recognize that name, uh, from David Sahadi. It was David Sahadi's dad, who is a writer by trade. So Lou met with Mick Foley several times and they went over different parts of Mick's life. And Lou took, tried his hand at writing Mick's book. Well, Mick hated it. Mick felt that it didn't capture, uh, his life in any way, shape or form. And Mick went and asked Vince if he could write his own book. And Vince said, well, you can try, but I'd really like a professional to do it. Uh, this is our first outing and I'd like it to be, be a successful one. So Mick Foley got, you know, the spiral notebooks. Yeah. Just bought a bunch of spiral notebooks and hand wrote every single word of that book. And he would be on planes and he would handwrite these things in, in these uh, spiral notebooks and he would hand them off to people to read. And it was great being on a plane with Mick because you could read his book right ahead of time. And then they would have someone transcribe it and type it all out. But every word in that book is, is Mick's own words. Mick wrote every single one of them. And it was absolutely excellent. I think that he did a better job. It is the best, uh, wrestler autobiography I've ever read and the best one that they ever produced in my opinion. Next up, we see the rock on a table backstage being attended to. And uh, now it's time for our four corner elimination match. Kane comes out first, then X-Pac followed by the acolytes. Um, X-Pac winds up winning the four corners elimination match and a little bit of an upset. They got 10 minutes and eight seconds. Meltzer wrote, the match had no heat this late in the card. There was something missing with mistimed spots with Kane against the Acolytes. The finish was mistimed badly enough that the crowd was flat for it. After all the months of building the finish where X-Pac would finally pin a big guy, the crowd could have cared less when he did so. Star and a half. Uh, I actually enjoyed the match. I didn't hate it nearly as much as Dave did. Uh, I enjoyed seeing how stiff JBL could be at times, and it's always fun to see, uh, how X-Pac works with bigger guys. And I enjoyed, you know, X-Pac trying to say he wanted to take on Kane and Kane kind of thinking this is laughable. I thought it told a, a good enough story. Meltzer didn't agree. what do you think, Bruce? What the hell was the match for? 
I mean, you're, you, this is your show. You were there, you booked it. So, well, that that's my point. I, there was, it was thrown together and it was haphazard. And I think that this was just another casualty of Russo had things booked and there wasn't a whole lot of things that were thought out by the time he had left. And now we're salvaging. So Vince just said, well, we'll keep it. Goddamn X-Pac beat bigger guys. To me, watching it, going back, there wasn't enough of a story for me and or the audience really to care about the match. Um, I thought the crowd was deader than Kelsey's nuts, and they sat on their hands. It was a decent, you know, decent match. All four guys worked hard, but I don't think that the audience was involved in it. They didn't really give a shit who won or who lost. And some of the finishes, the eliminations were so damn fast that you're kind of shaking your head going, what just happened? But, um, um, as a match, I guess it was okay, but no story. Kane and X-Pac seems like kind of a, a weird pairing. Who's the deal is that? How does that come to be? That came to be, uh, that was a Vince Russo idea and it came to be just exactly what you said. It's an odd pairing. It's a weird pairing. So it was the odd couple that they would actually be able to function as a team and be successful. Uh, tag team champions, but the original idea behind it was they had Terry Pock as kind of a love interest with Kane and then put her with X Pock, but it was just that. So the people would say, that's an odd couple. How are they going to work together? And then they become successful. Next up, we get a video package showing the build from SummerSlam to now. And of course we're building towards Steve Austin and triple H, uh, including unforgiven the prior month. Triple H is out here with a sledgehammer. But Vince comes from behind to try to take it from him and uh, Hunter decks him. And this allows Austin to get the jump on him. And these guys start brawling through the crowd. And it seems like around this time, Austin really enjoyed fighting through the crowd. Um, can you confirm that? It feels like we saw it a lot during this era. We did. And you go back and the package leading up to this match, I thought was excellent. Um, but a lot of that goes to Pat Patterson. Pat Patterson would usually be the agent on a lot of these matches. And Pat liked to do wild things. Uh, Austin's character was one of a kick-ass, you know, uh, no-holds-bar type wrestler. So his character and his overall persona kind of lent itself to those kind of matches. And Pat always liked to change him at the last minute. Well, we have no-holds-barred. Because Pat would lay a match out for what to make the match the best he could be. Then he would go back and change the rules to make it fit the match that he had laid out. He wouldn't say, okay, I've got a, I, I've got a match here and here are the rules. I've got to stay within the rules. He would say, what's going to make the best match. And then I'll make the rules fit whatever the hell I come up with. So Steve brawling all over the place and, and the issue that uh, triple H and Steve had at this time kind of lent itself to an all out brawl all over the building. They did the spot, uh, with the crane camera, which I was just laughing my ass off. I remember laying that spot out with them. Uh, so Austin spins the crane camera around <laughs> and, uh, triple H get, takes a bump off of it. Uh, he gets his hand up of course, but he takes a bump off of it and the crowd popped huge for it. Well, the problem with it is the first, the first angle that you saw, you see Hunter get his hand up. If they had used the angle that we laid out 
originally, which was actually the crane angle and the crane camera, it looks like it takes Hunter's head off. They show it in the replay, but, um, that was a cool spot that I just, I loved. And I wish that they would have, have shown it the, on the crane camera the first time, but overall, you know, the match, the match was terrific. They beat the hell out of each other. They wrestled all over the building and the finish shit. Come on. Yeah. So let's talk about the finish. Uh, rock who was near death 20 minutes earlier comes out with his ribs taped up and now he's carrying a sledgehammer. He goes to hit triple H triple H moves. So he winds up hitting Austin, uh, triple H gives a pedigree to the rock and then pins Austin to retain the title. And after the match, Austin gives chase to triple H, uh, they brawl through the back. Uh, and eventually there's another low blow and then China grabs triple H throws them in a limo and they drive off as Austin is left laying on the concrete in the back furious. Uh, Meltzer called it an excellent main event and gave it four stars. We've, uh, we talked on the unforgiven show about the rumor that Austin didn't want to put over triple H at SummerSlam a few months prior. Do you remember this finish being some sort of negotiation or was everybody happy with it because there was so many shenanigans? No, everybody was happy with it because it got all the three major components in involved in that finish. You had, you had rock coming out. It gave rock and Austin something to have going back and forth with rock hitting Austin with the sledgehammer. It had triple H ending up with the championship at the end and Steve is still on for the chase. So I thought that it accomplished everything and everybody was happy with it because it was a flawless finish in my opinion. And it got everybody's story out there. You got rock going all the way through the night with, uh, he's still on, he's got a personal vendetta with triple H Steve's got an issue with triple H and the championship. Now Steve has an issue with rock and the three of them now are all intertwined. So that's going to bring uh, a close here to no mercy, 1999. I've got a few more notes, uh, from the week after I want to get to, but overall, when you watch this show back, how would you rate it? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs down. Overall, thumbs down. It was a two-match card. It was the the new brood, Hardy, the Hardys against Edge and Christian and Stephen Hunter. To me, the latter match even overshadowed the main event. Would you agree? I thought it was a better match in the main event, but yeah, it was two-match card. That was it. All right, Bruce. It's that time every single week at the end of each episode. We encourage you to participate in the show. And the way to do that is to like us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And we made a post this week, have questions about no mercy 99. Just ask them here in this comment section, we posted a little video and boom, comments blow up. And now we're going to answer your questions. Uh, here we go. Jerry Lawler wrote in his book that he intentionally screwed up the lines in his interview with Terry. So they would have to reshoot it and he could look up her skirt. Uh, did you produce this? And if so, did you know that King was doing it on purpose? No, I did not produce it, but I would not be shocked at all that King would do something like that. Uh, we got lots of questions about the two fans who sat in the front row in fluorescent jackets. seems like they were at a lot of pay-per-views around this time. I don't know why people are fascinated with these guys, but can you tell us anything about them, Bruce? Uh, we always call them the fluorescent fans and I believe they were from Baltimore, but they came to all the, uh, live events, pay-per-views, television tapings in the area. They always got those tickets right opposite the hard camera and always 
uh, wore that fluorescent stuff so they could be seen, but really nice people. And that's about all I know about them. They were really nice and they came to all the events in the area. Here's the type of questions we need from our audience. Did Godfather ever find a way to use his leftover voodoo ooze in his new profession? I think he found ways to produce new ooze. Uh, any particular reason why THQ, the video game company, picked the name No Mercy for their Nintendo 64 game? I We're the ones that usually pick those names, so it was to be able to pro- uh, promote a pay-per-view brand that we have and just be able to get those brands out there on the games. Edge always talks about being late to the show. Was there a backup plan if he didn't make it? And what was the feeling amongst creative with him being late? Well, we knew he was going to be late and it was, you know, we felt that he was going to be there and he got there on time. So there never really was any, uh, we, we knew he'd be there. I mean, he was just late, but we knew he'd be there. There was no black backup plan because we were damn confident. He was good to go. Do you remember why he was late? I don't. Um, here's a fun one. How would Paul Heyman sing triple H's theme song? I don't know the words to triple H's theme song. I have no idea, sir. So you would have to give me another question. And if you have another volley, feel free to volley now. Okay. Uh, what would corny say about miss Kitty's outfit? God damn. It's tighter than it. I don't know. Well, you're really good today. I'm Mick- sorry. I'm the shits today. Mick Foley wrote in Foley is good that Russo and Ferrara wrote months of TV before heading to WCW. Uh, it was said to be a bunch of garbage, including an angle with mankind asking for the rock to marry him. Does Bruce remember if any of these uh, stories were true and what other ideas were scrapped? Russo had the TVs written for the week that he left. And that was all that, uh, that was all I was ever privy to. And that was all that Vince McMahon had. Uh, how was Cleveland as a wrestling town? The WCW purchased the first two survivor series, the boiler room brawl and multiple pay-per-views were filmed there. Cleveland and in Ohio, the, the state in general were great wrestling towns and Cleveland was a great market for us. As evident is, you know, survivor series. We ran there, the gun arena, but we had a really favorable building deal there as well. But the audiences were all, it's a great sports town. So it was always good to us. With X-Pac getting the win here in the four corners match, couldn't this have been a great jumping off point for him to have a run with the IC title? He did, didn't he? I, I think that it was another opportunity for X-Pac and, and Kane there, but I think this was the opportunity, and this is where we saw X-Pac kind of just branch off into singles. Uh, Ryan wants to know, has Triple H ever accidentally connected with the sledgehammer? Uh, yeah, all the time. Why wasn't the big show on this card? I don't remember specifically. There just wasn't a place for him. And and as I said, to begin with, this was kind of something that we were trying to get through and regroup for big show. And when I was watching the, the whole thing with, Mick Foley in the bathroom with Val Venus. My first thought was that that was big show in the stall. And obviously it wasn't, it was Val Venus, but I I can't really answer that one because I don't remember exactly where we were going with big show at that time. 
Uh, how far did you guys consider pushing Val Venus? God, there was, there was talk at one time to push Val. I mean, we felt that Val, we, uh, there were those that felt that Val could have been a top guy, but then there was also, I know Jim Ross and Vince McMahon both kind of felt that you could only go so far with the porn star gimmick. Um, I thought that Val could have been a top guy. Val could have been somebody that could have competed for the WWE championship. And if you're going to be edgy, then be edgy and go for it. Um, if you're not going to be edgy, then don't create those kind of characters that you can't push to the moon. I always was brought up on the philosophy that, you know, you bring in a talent. Traditionally, you should look at them being in the main event of WrestleMania. Uh, let's talk about, uh, and this is kind of a fun one for me. Whose idea was it for Paul to use the sledgehammer as its weapon? Uh, now it's iconic. Whenever you watch and see the sledgehammer, you automatically think of triple H. You do. And I think it was, uh, I want to say it was either triple H or Vince McMahon because they were looking for something different. They were looking for something that everybody else doesn't use. They didn't want to use a chair. They didn't want to use something else. And they thought, well, a sledgehammer and all of that was supposed to be just a one-off, but then it became his signature. And like I say, now it's iconic, but in the beginning it was, we just needed something different to use. And a sledgehammer was big and effective. How hurt was Austin here? During this time, you know, Steve always had those nagging injuries. And I want to say this was coming off of one of Steve's uh, knee injuries as well that, uh, you know, he was kind of gimping along. He used to joke about how he used to have to put his Forrest Gump braces on to run to the ring because he had those big knee braces and everything. I think Steve probably went out and, and worked injured and worked hurt an awful lot. Um, because it's what he wanted to do. He loved the business and wanted to keep going. But I think that he always had those nagging neck and knee injuries. Why were so many angles done in the bathroom during this time? Vince loves bathroom humor. God, put him in the bathroom and we have a fart sound. They'll love it. He likes bathroom humor. Uh, how far do you think Gangrel would have done better in the company? Had he not come in with a vampire gimmick? I don't think that, uh, Gangrel would have gone as far without the vampire gimmick, frankly. Really? Well, well there you go. Anything else you want to cover here on, um, no mercy. Well, I got, I got a lot of questions also. It, it seemed like on Twitter and also here on Facebook as well, talking about bulldog wearing jeans to the ring. And it, it was something that bulldog wanted to do, but it, it wasn't something he didn't wear them every single week. I mean, he did wear tights or from time to time as well. Uh, this particular pay-per-view, he actually wore jeans and that was just a decision on bulldog to try and look different from what he had previously done. Uh, the night after, um, no mercy, they're doing raw in Columbus, Ohio. They draw 312,000 bucks with, uh, 10,843 fans, only about 1400 shy of a sellout. And of course the show opens with rock doing a promo talking about his title match at survivor series with triple H. But Austin comes out and says he deserves another shot because Rock cost him the match. Uh, we would also see Moolah and Mae Young do an interview 
uh, where May would challenge Mula to a title match, and they have to do a little bit of a pull apart. Mark Henry visits a fourth sex therapist. This time, uh, it's a, a lady who looks like Janet Reno, I guess. Um, you've also got the Hollies winning the tag titles for Mankind and Rock when Triple H does a run in and gives Rock a pedigree. Uh, so an interesting show, but the news coming out of the show is in the next issue of the observer. And this is what I wanted to get to. Dave wrote, there are no plans for the foreseeable future to use Shawn Michaels on television. He has heat with most of the top talent in the company and management for a variety of reasons, including his WWF web chat, where he complained about Austin as champion, not putting over triple H cleanly at SummerSlam. Do you remember this Bruce? There's rumored innuendo out there that Sean managed to alienate himself from rock Austin and even triple H. Do you remember Sean during this time being pretty difficult to deal with? No, it wasn't difficult to deal with. He was being an asshole and just going out into business for himself. And I, in my opinion, I think at the time that Sean just didn't want to do anything. So he would do controversial things to try and see what, okay, what are they going to do now? That's my feeling. I think that's why Sean did it. So that, uh, I think Sean liked having that heat. Sean liked rubbing people the wrong way. And I think that that's, he got what he wanted. Okay. We just won't use Sean for anything else going forward, but he had a lot of heat with a lot of people. Definitely. Around the same time, the Toronto sun reported that the WWF had lukewarm interest in buying the Canadian football leagues, Toronto Argonauts, um, do you remember there being any sort of preliminary discussion before the XFL that Vince may try to buy Toronto's Canadian league team? We were, we were looking at, uh, I don't remember which one it was, but yeah, he was definitely looking to buy a uh, Canadian football team. Uh, a couple of weeks after this, uh, I keep bringing this up because I hope one day it wins a poll and it hasn't yet. It's been on a few times. Meltzer wrote the initial valuation of WWFE stock before it went public with 17% of the company being put on sale at a valuation of 137 million would make the value of 100% of the stock, 806 million that would on paper make the remaining 83% of the stock owned by the McMahon family to be worth $669 million by the end of the first day of trading the time. The stock initially initially opened at 32 the McMahon family stock would have been worth on paper 1.56 billion. Um, but it was back down at the end of the day to 1.23 billion. Um, the company's stock at this point in late 99 is worth $1.7 billion. This is the hottest the company's ever been and going public changed, not just the company, but the industry and the McMahon family forever. Did it not? Uh, definitely. It changed a lot of people's lives without a doubt. So hopefully it wins a poll one day. I just wanted to get that in there because it w- did happen around this same time. And it was an interesting time behind the scenes on camera, lots of stuff going on. That was no mercy 1999. And now it's time to tell you what we might talk about next week, but we need to remind you that this week's episode was brought to you by WWE 2K18. It's the biggest biggest video game in franchise history. It's WWE 2K18. On the cover, of course, is the superstar Seth Rollins. And don't forget, as a pre-order bonus, you can play as Kurt Angle. 
WWE 2K18 promises to bring you closer to the ring than ever before with hard-hitting action, new game modes, and more. Pre-order this deluxe edition today. You get to play four days early, and you get the bonus Kurt Angle. Learn more about WWE 2K18 at WWE.2K.com. That's WWE.2K.com. Bruce, are you ready for this week's poll? I'm ready. Give it to me. All right, let's do it. Can't believe we're really doing this. Uh, You let me pick three, and I'll let you pick one, and yours is hilarious. Uh, My first pick is In Your House, Buried Alive. This goes down on October 20th, 1996. It happened at the Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. Stone Cold Steve Austin took on Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Owen Hart and the British Bulldog were battling for the tag belts against the Smoking Guns. Mark Marrow was defending his Intercontinental title against Goldust. Of course, Sable and Marlena are there. We've also got Psycho Sid taking on Vader. And uh, maybe the most interesting match at the time in company history, The Undertaker is taking on Mankind with Paul Bearer in a Buried Alive match. What might we talk about if In Your House Buried Alive wins the poll? The the whole buildup and some of the greatest vignettes that I have ever had the pleasure to do in my life leading up to the Buried Alive match with Mankind, Paul Bearer, and Undertaker and why Paul Bearer swore that he would never do another vignette with me after this whole series of vignettes. But uh, an incredible night, an incredible match with Buried Alive. We thought it was a one-off, but obviously we did a few more. And don't forget, Shawn Michaels and Goldust for the WWF Championship. An incredible card. We'll talk all about it. Let's go to poll topic number two. Hopefully you liked No Mercy today. Well, let's do it again. No Mercy 2003. This one goes down October 19th, 2003. Uh, This time we're in Baltimore, Maryland. And a pretty interesting card here. We've got Tajiri taking on Rey Mysterio for the Cruiserweight title. Benoit is taking on A-Train. Zach Gowan is wrestling Matt Hardy. We've got the Basham brothers taking on the APA. And then how's this for fun? An I Quit match with Vince McMahon, who has Sable in his corner, taking on Stephanie McMahon, who has Linda McMahon in her corner. We've also got Kurt Angle taking on John Cena. Big Show challenging for the United States title against Eddie Guerrero. And Brock Lesnar is going to be defending his world title against The Undertaker. And this is a biker chain match. What might we be talking about if No Mercy 2003 wins the poll? Well, obviously the big topic is Vince McMahon and Sable and Stephanie and Linda McMahon because that was the whole talk of the wrestling business at the time. And how in the hell is Vince going to have a match with his daughter? Um, God, a lot of politics involved there. Just a lot of craziness in general. But also one of the funniest things was uh, Brock versus Undertaker and having to listen to Vince's rationale as to why uh, a chain match is bad, but a biker chain match, okay. Anyway, yeah, another Vince rationale. Such an interesting card, too. You know, you've got Tajiri, Mysterio, Benoit, Zach Gowan, you know, Vince, Eddie Big Show, Stephanie, Eddie Big Show, Kurt Angle, and John Cena. But that's something a lot of people think never happened, and it happened. So that's what we might talk about if No Mercy 2003 wins the poll. Next up, something that's a first. It's Taboo Tuesday 2004. Uh, People thought this would never happen, but it did. It's another Tuesday pay-per-view. 
Of course, they tried Tuesday in Texas back in 91. They bring it back here, but they tried something different. They let the fans pick the stipulations. Lots of rumor and innuendo here. It goes down in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on October 19th, 2004. And uh, it's got a pretty memorable main event. It's Randy Orton and Ric Flair inside of a steel cage. Uh, Just before that, we would get Triple H and Shawn Michaels. How about a lingerie pillow fight between Christy Hemme and Carmella? Uh, Don't forget, Chris Benoit and Edge are taking on La Resistance for the tag titles. Not something you probably thought you'd see. Eugene is taking on Eric Bischoff in a Choose the Losers fake match. Gene Snitsky, it's not my fault, taking on Kane. Uh, Of course, Lita is there for the weapon of choice match. Trish Trish Stratus is also competing in a Fulfill Your Fantasy Battle Royal for the WWE Women's Championship. That's a real thing. Uh, And Shelton Benjamin, Chris Jericho, is the opening match here on the card. I guess we should mention, too, there was a a match that was on the pre-show. Sergeant Slaughter, Muhammad Hassan. Talk about a blast from the past. There's so much going on on this card. What might we talk about if Taboo Tuesday 2004 wins the poll? Well, whose idea it was to do the whole Taboo Tuesday and you know why we even did it in the first place. It was an opportunity to get a lot of fan interaction and have people participate in the pay-per-view. So it was, it was really an experiment, and we'll talk about the whole reason why, who came up with it, as well as how we came up with a lot of the stipulations for the matches, and some of them were absolutely crazy. The uh, the cage match is, uh, is pretty good, but there's another match on here. Maybe not so much. It's Tabby Tuesday, 2004. That's poll option number three. Last but certainly not least, we're going to... Break the mold here. So far, we've got three pay-per-views on the poll. Uh, Bruce wanted to do something different, and I, I kind of laughed when he suggested it because I'm happy about it. Poll topic number four, Doink the Clown. We have had Doink on the uh, poll several times. We have gotten some feedback that a lot of you guys really prefer the, the wrestler personality profiles as opposed to the show. Bruce has been fired up about doing Doink for a while, so he thought, hey, Let's put it against three other shows and see how all Doink can do. I'm not going to say we rigged this poll, but this is about as good as it's going to get for Doink the Clown. Is it not, Bruce? Hey, come on. I constantly get people who say, why won't you guys do a show on Doink the Clown? Okay, here's what you got to do. It's real simple. You go to Facebook.com. You go forward slash something to wrestle, and there's going to be a poll there. Vote for Doink so we can get the history of the entire Doink the Clown character from Matt Bourne to Ray Apollo to Steve Kern to Brooklyn Brawler and all the other imposter Doinks but the true story behind Doink the Clown one of the most fascinating characters in WWF WWE history ever don't forget it facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle you can vote on the poll it's up right now And we should also tell you, we are making hella progress to our bonus episode. Don't forget, when we get to 30,000 likes on Facebook, we're going to get you SummerSlam 1991. When we get to 40,000, we're going to come back at you at Survivor Series 1991. But maybe most importantly, when we get to 50,000 likes, this is a fun deal here, guys. You get Tuesday in Texas from 1991. And of course, the 1992 Royal Rumble. One of everyone's favorites. What does it cost you? 0.0. Cruise on over and like us on Facebook. It's free. It just takes one click. 
It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Don't forget to pick up a shirt over at brucepetcher.com. If you'd like to see Bruce and I in Houston, pick up tickets right before Survivor Series. You'll have a great time seeing us and then going to the pay-per-view. Tickets are on sale now, but they're going fast over at boxofgimmicks.com. And of course, you can follow Bruce Pritchard and keep up with all things Bruce at Bruce Pritchard on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And now. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.